With all the great fantasy experts out there, why does Baseball HQ Radio only have one per show? I asked myself that, and then I went out and got two expert analysts for this show, Ariel Cohen, a player projections and valuation expert at Rotographs, and Matthew Cederholm, a fantasy researcher and the injury analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ariel Cohen and Matthew Cederholm coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 14th. It's show number 23 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interviews with Ariel Cohen, a player projections and valuation expert at Rotographs, and Matthew Cederholm, a fantasy researcher and the injuries analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ariel will be talking about the challenges in projecting during a shortened season. He has a new pitching metric based on individual pitch outcomes, some bold predictions he made just before the season started in July, and he'll have his boons and banes. Matthew, meanwhile, will give us the lowdown on how injury analysis works, and we'll talk about some injuries to key players. As well, we'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Marcus Stroman, Madison Bumgarner, and Nick Pavetta. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Tim Anderson, Giancarlo Stanton, Franchi Cordero, Charlie Morton, and more. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in Hey Taxi! Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Kansas City right-handed pitcher Kevin Lynch. And in extra innings, I'll be giving you a hitter's quiz for the first third of the short 2020 season. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The season's almost a third over. Doesn't even sound right, does it? But we still got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one, our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen, a player projections and valuation expert at Rotographs. Ariel, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Oh, thanks so much for having me once again, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. Uh, having a work from home experience these last few months has been interesting. I know you're working from home as well. Yeah, uh, that's the way that life has to be these days. I've been working from home pretty much since March. Um, hey, but, uh, you know, some things are good about it. Some things are bad. The commute is better, but uh, bad, bad on the kids. I, I, I really uh, wish things clear up pretty soon, and uh, hopefully it will, God willing. Yeah, the uh, question now, of course, is whether the kids are going to be allowed to go back to school, and if they can go back to school, what will the rules be? And uh, in uh, here in Canada, every province has a different set of rules. Some cities have different sets of rules within each province, and I know it's probably very similar where you are. Yeah, in New York, uh, the governor just announced that schools are allowed to go back. Uh, my kids are slated to go back right after Labor Day. Um, they have to wear masks to and from the school and on the buses and whatnot. But uh, I'm actually really excited and hopeful. It's actually been pretty good in New York the last couple of months. We do have baseball to watch, uh, except for St. Louis Cardinals fans, I guess. But uh, yeah. we also have our fantasy baseball. How many teams are you running this year, uh, Ariel, and how are they split between March drafts and July drafts? 
Well, I'm only running six this year, uh, doing less than normal. I'm not playing in any of the NFBC or uh, high money leagues. Uh, for me to spend a lot of money, I like the whole process, the 162 game process to work out. So I've cut them out. I'm in a couple of expert leagues. I'm in Tout, Labor. I'm doing Raz Slam. I know you are too in TGFBI. And then I'm in a co- uh, two home leagues. Um, all of the leagues drafted in March, but one. Uh, so not a very, very busy draft season in July, but, uh, uh, you know, just stayed the course. Given the uh, excellent job you did in preparing people who read your work for the drafts in March, you had some really excellent advice about how to do auctions. Uh, you had a very interesting story about nomination theory, which I really liked. How much change was there in your July draft from your March draft as far as strategy and tactics? What I noticed is that I tended to be more towards middle, middle, middle instead of stars and scrubs. Um, When you have a short season, a 60-game season, the variance of players is much greater. Um, There is a much better chance that at the end of the year, a sixth-round player could be a first-round player than in any other regular season, right? Um, The probability that Mike Trout is going to be the first overall player goes down very much in the short season. Right. And anybody drafted in the seventh, eighth round, it goes up. So that means that values get compressed. Right? Players are more similar to another because the probability of anyone being better than anyone is just a, more of a crapshoot. For that reason, I want more of a chance at popping into the first, second round. So I did not draft top players. I wouldn't draft any of the first round players, second round players. I went middle, 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 get extra value in the in the auction in the middle um, to give myself more cards to play with. If I was in a draft, and I, I did not do a live draft, but if I did one, um, there's no choice. You have to pick a first rounder in the first round. You have to pick a second rounder in the second round, but I would immediately want to trade. I would take my Christian Yelich that I, that I've acquired with the second, third, fourth pick or whatever I wanted. And I'd say, okay, who wants Christian Yelich? I'll trade you for two third, fourth rounders and pick up value that way. That was my general philosophy going into it. I've heard that. And there was a lot of advice that I thought was well-founded in coming into July drafts that because of the tremendous amount of variance that we could expect from the short season, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but because of it, really the only thing you wanted to do to try to be sure of anything was to collect innings and plate appearances and uh, let let the volume alone carry you to a successful finish especially on the batting side because as you said you got Mike Trout you don't know if you're getting first round sixth round value whatever I mean obviously it skews more towards the first round than the sixth but anything can happen in a 60 game run so if you just maximize your plate appearances at least you're going to get counting stats which is something that you can't say if you if you throw a lot of uh, a lot of money into your top two or three guys 35 dollars each Right. When, when I was doing the ATC projections for the 60-game season, uh, the most crucial thing that I knew I had to spend the most time on in refining it was the playing time. Um, and I couldn't count on just the weights that I use historically for years and years and years, blending my underlying projection systems. I focused more and I gave more weight to some of the manual projections. Um, some of the some of the projections are formed by an individual going through it and saying, hey, I think this guy's going to play more. This guy's going to play less. I trust 
tested that more in the 60-game season because they had an eye on what was going on and just didn't look at the overall uh, calculated automatic rates. So in that sense, I think that you're right. I think that playing time is one of the most crucial things and and always has been. Uh, that's why right now also when I'm drafting, I, I'm looking for who's in the lineup, who's batting first, second, third, fourth. Our players being pushed down to eighth or ninth. Uh, I think where you bat in the lineup, just getting those extra at-bats played appearances, so crucial. Well, you mentioned the variance of small samples, and I'm very interested about this because one of the bogeymen for any kind of projection system, as we've talked about in the past, Ariel, is the sample size because we know smaller sample sizes just increase that variance. They widen the error bars. So when you are looking at your own projections, how much less confident are you, not just in your own, but in all of them, as far as hitting the median versus hit going more t- towards the extremes of possibilities in a particular player's projection? Oh, it's it's so much harder. I mean, uh, and my confidence level is, is so much worse. But of course, it's it's not just worse for me. It's, it's worse for everyone. And the idea is still to get it right. I mean, uh, you know, Mike Trout is, is going to be a top pick. I'm not going to, uh, say, well, there's more variance and, and he could, be. It, 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 you expect, you expect the expectation, right? The only, uh, things that I had to adjust for, or at least I thought of was perhaps power might be different. You know, if you look at a regular season, there are more home runs in the summer months and less in the first month. Now it might be because of a, the coldness of, of March, April and whatnot. So I played power a little bit more. Uh, stolen bases, most stolen bases in a season are in the first two months or in September, possibly because of expanded rosters. I actually shied away from stolen bases. And when I did my evaluations of players, I gave less credit to stolen bases for that very reason. So, you know, there were a couple things I had to adjust, but on the whole, the same overlying principle of aggregation, you know, still helps, you know, in general, on a, on a fantasy baseball team, um, the player who comes in first at the end of a half a year they're a pretty, I'm not going to say they're a lock, but they're pretty good shot. In fact, I've calculated that June 5th is the date where standings matter. If you're in first place on June 5th, there's a good chance you're going to finish in the money uh, in your fantasy league at the end. And what is the magic date in this short season, or have you figured it out? Uh, well, I mean, uh, if it's June 5th on an April 5th starting time, then if we started on Ju- July 24th, it might be September 24th. So uh, I don't think there is a magic date in this season, to be honest. I've read two schools of thought about how projection users can or should exploit the increased projection variance we've been talking about. On one side, they say you should embrace the riskier plays because if you hit, the variance could be disproportionately helpful and it increases the downside of safe players. The other side says the safe plays are even safer because the increased variance actually makes the risky players even riskier. I can see the merit on both sides of this argument. Where do you stand? So I would say that the safer players or what you would think of the safer player is probably less safe relative to the pack uh, in the short season. I think that the increase in variance in the quote unquote safer players 
goes up more than the increase in variance in a risky player. A risky player is risky for many reasons. He might have health issues, right? If, if, a, if a player is, can't stay healthy a whole season, well, in a 60-game season, maybe he can stay healthy the whole season. So I would lie on that side where um, I think that it's just everything is just a, a complete a blend. Just like what I said before, you know, you, you don't know if a first-round player is going to be a six-round player. I would say that safe, safer players are not as safe as you think. Now, all of this applies mostly to drafting, and of course, our drafting is done for this season, but we do have fab bidding. It's going to be going on right from now till the end. How does the increased variance and the shorter time horizons affect fab bidding and player expectations, or do we just say there's X number of weeks left? It's the same as if there was X number of weeks left in a in a 26-week season. We just have, you know, whatever it is now, 12 or 14 weeks left to go behave as though there were 12 or 14 weeks left to go. Well, I mean, when you make a fab pickup, there's usually a couple of reasons why you do. One, you see a hot player and you want to exploit him for the short term, or you pick up somebody for the short term because their schedule dictates, like a pitcher has a good matchup, or maybe a player is playing at Colorado, one of those things. So in that regard, it's pretty much the same, right? Your short-term pick is the short-term pick. Uh, the other reason is you just see a player that you think might be a help to, for the rest of the season. Let's say you have an injury on your team, and you have to replace them. Um, well, in that case, uh, it's also pretty much the same as before. You still have the injury issue. In fact, it's even worse. You, you're, you, you need to fill that spot more because the injury is now a higher percentage of the rest of the season. So in in that case, I would say that your fab probably should be more because, you know, you have to fill somebody for the rest of the season. But in terms of the hot start, I think it's just important. Um, so I, I'll say like this. I think that people who are spending a very high percentage of their fab immediately uh, probably should slow down more. I think that um, the short-term play in September is going to be very, very important. You know, in a, in a regular season in September, you know, you're left with you could be left with just a little bit of fab and you're just going to eke out stuff. But it doesn't matter because the standings are pretty much set. You're just trying to just make it up at the end. Well, September here is a huge part of the entire season. And those fab bets on the short term are going to be really crucial and a bigger part of the season. So I would suggest to people to hold back on fab a little bit more for September because those weekly plays in the short term are going to be very, very important down the stretch. That still leaves the issue that you mentioned earlier where you're looking at a guy on your roster who's off to a very slow start. And I'm not talking about a Christian Yelich or a Cody Bellinger. You can't drop those guys so that you can pick up Mitch Moreland or something like that. But you can look at a guy who is you know, one of your 3 or $4 players. He's just not getting the job done for whatever reason. And then the question that you have to ask yourself, Ariel, I think is given the amount of variability that's inherent in this whole philosophy – do I wait for my $4 player to resume a $4 trajectory or do I assume that this variation is going to be longer lasting and take up more of the season and therefore be more damaging to me and roll the dice on somebody else, which would argue in favor of acting aggressively early because you want to get the bad guy off your roster and get what you hope is somebody good onto it in time to have some kind of you know, meaningful impact on your numbers. 
Yeah, I mean, to to me, the threshold for what is droppable, what is benchable, uh, has to go up a little bit deeper into your roster, right? You have less time to play with to get things right. Uh, it also depends on how bad you are. If after two weeks you're in first place, oh, you might want to hold off a little bit. If you're down at the bottom and you need to make a jump, you better do it soon. So, uh, you know, taking the risk really does depend on your standing even this early. Um, I would say, though, it, a lot depends on pedigree. Um, if you had Lance McCullers junior pitch last week and he gave up those ungodly number of runs you you might have pushed the button quickly and say all right get rid of i can't have this guy hurt me but mccullers you know established guy he's been around a while first start back in a while um if you had the patience like i did in in uh, labor to just stick with him for a little while longer um i i was rewarded i think especially for pitchers who have a pedigree you might want to hold a little bit longer for just rookies, run-of-the-mill uh, players, uh, the tolerance has to be uh, greater to drop, especially uh, especially low down. But that still raises a kind of an issue, Ariel. When I look at the bottom of the pitching barrel so far this year, and keeping in mind this is a very small sample, as we mentioned, but there's some 15 pitchers in Baseball HQ's uh, valuation system who have amassed minus $20 or less in 5 by 5 value. And this includes some established guys, Jay Happ, uh, Gio Gonzalez, I have him on my roster, uh, Madison Bumgarner, I think it turns out is hurt, but Jeff Samarja, Robbie Ray, who actually is uh, has some pretty good skills. These guys are all killing everybody that owns them. And yet, when you're the owner of one of these guys and you look at what's available in the free agent pool, you're really faced with a tough decision, and it comes down to, do I think that Jay Happ or Gio Gonzalez is going to rebound and that the first couple of starts represent a, a variation or an anomaly, or is this who they are and I can't afford to wait because I don't have enough time to make up the colossal damage that even one more bad start is going to do, to my, especially to my decimals? Yeah, I hope you don't think this is a cop-out answer, but I think that it really is a case-by-case -case basis. Um, I mean, uh, you need to take a look at each pitcher and see what's going wrong. with. Uh, you mentioned, you know, with, let's say, Madison Bumgarner. Uh, he might be hurt. His stuff looks off. His velocity is down. Uh, with Robbie Ray, he's pretty much his old self, giving up homers and, and whatnot. Uh, I really think it is a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and looking at some of the underlying components of, of each player. But uh, I think you can't make a bad decision at the very bottom. Uh, to me, um, churning your bottom pitchers, especially pitchers, churning your bottom of your whole roster, I think that's key in playing the right matchups. To me, I wouldn't ask more about the pitcher. I would ask more about, okay, who's available on the wire for the following week to play, especially in shallow leagues. In deeper leagues, yeah, I might take the pedigree of the pitcher more. Um, J.A. Happ, uh, if I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with him, I'll roll with him. Gio Gonzalez, been a, ver a veteran year after year. I I'd roll with him unless you think there's some some something fundamentally wrong or he's injured. And before we get off this topic, Ariel, I know your projection system, as you mentioned, is based on aggregating some other projection systems that you trust and think uh, are well operated in much the same way that Nate Silver uses poll uh, analysis of multiple polls to come up with his polling results. And 
I think most of us are hoping and confident that 2021 will go back to a full slate of 162 games. But most of these projection systems are based at least in part on some kind of weighted average of the past three seasons. And I wonder how do you incorporate a 60-game 2020 season into a weighted average of, of 18, 19, and 20 when you're putting together your 2021 20, projections or when any projection system is putting together for 2021 Again, because you know the 2020s results were hit by this increased variance from reduced sample. That's a fantastic question. Um, the, the how to actually use 2020, uh, and it's not an easy answer. ATC relies on the other projections, so I'm going to be in a waiting position to see what they have come up with. But if I'm doing my own projection system, um, I think it really matters on the statistic. First of all, uh, when, when you do projections, you break out playing time and rates. Right? There's a home run rate, there's strikeout rates, and then there's playing time. How many at-bats, how many plate appearances will you have? The at-bat and plate appearances, to me, is not going to be based on the 2020. It's going to be based on a lot of manual factors, so that's not going to change an approach. But the rates, I think it depends, and it depends on how quickly rates stabilize. Home run rate might take a longer time than maybe a strikeout rate or a walk rate. For those, I might incorporate the, the ones that stabilize quickly. I might incorporate the 2020 rate per plate appearance or rate per at bat uh, almost full. Uh, you might want to take 80% of the season, whereas home run rate, you might want to discount that and maybe only use 2020 rate 40%. I think it really depends on on the statistic and on how quickly uh, it, it comes to being uh, relevant. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs. And uh, Ariel, recently at the Rotograph site, you had an article discussing a metric you developed in 2018 and 19 to assess pitchers, and you called your metric Weighted Plate Dis Discipline Index, which we will call WPDI. And by the way, there's a religious radio station in uh, somewhere in New Jersey, WPDI, in case you're wondering. Uh, <laughs> uh, you wrote about it this year because the metric is somewhat analogous to Alex Fast's uh, CSW metric, which he developed independently. He calls his called strikes plus whiffs. And the key thing you said that uh, jumped out at you was that he's using the same denominator as you are, which is the individual pitch count. They're not uh, aggregating over at-bats or plate appearances or batters faced. It's pitch by pitch by pitch. You're counting every pitch. Why was that such a critical point for both of you? Well, I mean, it's fantastic, first of all, that I can compare somebody else's metric to mine. It has the same base, so you can compare it. Uh, but to me, pitch is really uh, the best uh, it, it's it's the most detailed, the deepest possible event you can get. I mean, what's what you can't go any further than pitcher throws a pitch, right? You're not going to break it up into the first half of the pitch and the second half of the pitch, right? It's the pitch. You can break up an at bat further. You can break up an inning further. Can't break up a pitch, um, and it stabilizes a lot faster in terms of sample size. You know, if you have two, three outings you're going to amass 200 and 300 pitches, right? Your, your sample size for evaluating metric is so much greater. That means it all stabilizes quickly. You can talk about uh, a game by game in WPDI, just like you could in CSW, because you're talking about something with a hundred pitches. Um, to me, that's the power of everything. 
Okay, so can you give us an overview of your new metric WPDI? Sure. So for the weighted plate discipline index, it's all based on three binary events. Number one, is the ball thrown in the zone or is it thrown out of the zone? Is the pitch swung on or not swung on? And third, does the batter make contact with the ball or not? And I use the fan graph metrics like Z-swing and O-swing and Z-contact and whatnot. Um, and there are, there are six possible outcomes that it that could be, right? You can have a ball thrown in the zone, not swung at. You can be out of the zone, swung at, not contacted. You do the math. There's six binary outcomes there. Um, and I take a look at the percentage of the time, percentage of pitches that are in each possible outcome. I classify them outcomes A through F. Uh, and uh, I assign each outcome a weight, right? You might want to do it for different reasons. Maybe one is more deceptive than the other. Maybe one correlates more to strikeouts or however you want to figure it. You sign a weight, and then the WPDI is the linear combination of all the outcomes with the weights. It's a, it's a generalized linear model for, uh, for describing a baseball game. And when those uh, individual outcomes are aggregated per pitcher you get a table of pitchers from higher scores to lower which should correlate pretty closely and do in fact correlate pretty closely with performance as far as um, fantasy-based statistics are concerned you get a pretty good a pretty good correlation in fact an excellent one yeah, exactly. Um, the idea is that you're turning these possible outcomes into a leaderboard, right? You're going to have a 450 WPDI uh, be fantastic and a 251 be terrible. And it's a way to rank the players in one all-encompassing statistics. Obviously, there's nothing one all-encompassing, but it's a, way to, it's a way to rank them and to say, okay, here's the better and here's the worse. Well, when we first started getting access to StatCast data, which allowed us to look at these pitch-by-pitch -pitch kind of metrics, I did some similar research back when I did that sort of thing for BaseballHQ.com, and I also wanted to use the individual pitch as the denominator for exactly the reasons you cite. But I ran into one issue I had trouble with, and I'm curious what you did. I didn't know how to classify foul balls. They are really contact in the precise def definition of the term, the bat touched the ball, but they're not contact in the sense of being put into play. And then given that, we still have to sort of reconcile the conflict between loud fouls, which are, you know, line drives that hammered just foul outside first or third, or one of those fly balls that's crushed and misses the foul pole by inches. And maybe even those straight back screamers where the guy clearly squared it up and just missed it at the top or usually at the top of the bat versus soft fouls nubbed at the plate or dribbled or popped up to, into foul ground outside of first or third. In the end, I just decided to call them all swinging strikes but I was never entirely comfortable with doing that. How does your WPDI metric classify foul balls? So that's a great question. Um, I use for WPDI, I use Fangraphs data, um, and Fangraphs is going to classify a foul ball as something contacted, right? If it's tipped, if it's hit foul ball, whatever it is, if the batter makes contact with the pitch. If you go to Baseball Savant, which powers CSW, They've got different classifications for foul ball. There's there's tipped fouls, hit fouls ball. So they're actually a little bit more uh, detailed. And in fact, the Statcast definition of what a swinging strike doesn't include any of the foul balls other than foul tips. Uh, so CSW, uh, which uses the Savant data, 
um, will incorporate foul tips. I'm actually going to be writing about this article, uh, about this in my next article uh, on on swinging strikes, which is going to come out this week, may, may even come back out already uh, uh, as this podcast is posted. Um, but you'll actually notice that the CSW definition of the swinging strikes is going to give about 7 to 8% more uh, pitches than I'll use on WPDI, um, which, is, which is okay. You know, a definition is definition. Um, and it turns out that there isn't a real big difference in terms of whether a pitcher is good or not if he's generating more or less of these foul tips. Um, it, it's sort of uncorrelated, uh, being you can include him and not include them, and you get a very similar result. I think Tom Tango suggested to MLB to actually include them in swinging strike definition, as it might give a little bit more predictability to a swinging strike rate. Um, but um, it doesn't really matter either way. I don't use them. Savant does. You said in the article your system weights the six different outcomes from best for the pitcher to worst, out of zone, no contact, you said, is the best outcome uh, at 100%, in zone with contact, the worst at 0% because it's the worst possible outcome for the pitcher, and then all the other uh, four outcomes are scaled in between. You said the method was not arbitrary, although part of it was based on a Twitter poll, but also you said it was not mathematically derived. I was a bit surprised by that because you're such a wizard with the math and I've applied it so successfully. Why couldn't the outcomes have been mathematically derived? Maybe uh, WOBA on each type of outcome or something like that. Yep, yep. I know. I, I hear that question. And, and I did this on purpose because I, I didn't want to put out the framework as here's the be all end all and here's the way it's period. Um, I wanted to just first put out the framework. Uh, get user comments, feedback, um, just introduce everyone to the method. And remember, WPDI is a framework. Um, we could produce weights that are going to be more predictive towards strikeouts or towards walks even, or W or WOBA, as you say, or FIP. I mean, you can we can make it predictive or descriptive or however we want to correlate it to any of the metric, but it's important to know how it is formulated. And I wanted to put out some some weights originally so that you get a sense of how it's described, that you can feel that, oh, that makes sense, it's intuitive. So, for example, I did uh, an article about what I call the Maddox Plate Discipline Index, MPDI. And Greg Maddox, the great Hall of Famer, once said, the key to pitching is to throw a strike when the batter isn't swinging and to throw a ball when the batter is swinging. And I can do that in WPDI because it's three of my outcomes. My outcomes, A, B, F, it's the ones out of the zone plus the one in the zone with no swing. Um, and, I, you know, WPDI is flexible enough to handle that definition. So I wanted to show the intuitive side of things first. And then this year, that was last year, and then this year, I'm now mathematically going through how to represent it. My first article in the series, I did uh, called, uh, called strikes. Then I'm going to be doing swinging strikes and whiffs this week. Then we'll do an overall strikeout rate, walk rate, and we'll show how the WPDIs go. And then we're going to mathematically uh, put it all together and going to come to what we think a final weighting should be, what we want it to be. And I think it's, a, it's good that it's a communal thing. You know, I want to get the community, fantasy baseball community to really buy into what they want to see out of a WPDI leaderboard, and we'll head towards that with everybody. You weighted the in zone without contact at 90%, and you said that was to show the most desirable outcome of generating a swinging strike outside the zone. Because even if they make contact... Uh, 
they make weak contact eventually. So getting a swinging strike out of the zone is, is the best. But we might think that in-zone whiffs are even stronger outcomes because a pitcher who gets a lot of them is clearly dominating hitters. And swing or no swing, it's going to be a strike either way. Why isn't a swing just a swing? Well, I mean, I think it comes back to deception. Uh, just what I said about about Greg Maddox that you know, if a bat if a batter is swinging at a pitch in the zone and they're swinging and missing, that's going to be pure stuff. You know, it's going to be velocity on the pitcher, pure stuff. But in terms of deceptiveness, in terms of movement, right, control and movement, getting horizontal move on the ball, up down motion. Um, I'd rather for a deceptive purpose, I'd rather get batters to swing at stuff they shouldn't have, right? The ball's thrown out of the zone, batter shouldn't be swinging. But if you're getting them to swing, I think that makes you a more effective and deceptive pitcher. So I give a little bit more credit to that. Uh, I mean, I, I use it on the other way. Um, if you look at WPDI from a hitter standpoint uh, and take a look at what batters are the ones that swing when the ball is in the zone and lay off, well, I'll take a guy like Jeff McNeil. I uncovered him before last season as a guy who is, does a great job of recognizing pitchers in the zone and gets the barrel on it when it's there and doesn't when it's not. Um, uh, Josh Bell is another example of a guy I uncovered that way. So I think deceptiveness and plate discipline are all tied together, and that's why I give more credit to pitchers who throw out of the zone generating a swinging strike than inside. One of the other... Uh key differences between the CSW metric and WPDI was how you determine what is in the zone and what is out. Uh, you use pitch location from technology. CSW uses umpire's calls to determine uh, if the umpire says it's a strike, it's a strike even if it was off the plate. They both have their strengths and you are gracious enough to talk in your article about the strengths of the CSW version, but take us through your thinking about why, why you decided to rely on the actual location of the pitch versus the ability of the umpire to correctly assess the location of the pitch. Well, I think this is a, a great debate as to what's more important, right? Uh, you know, w w which is the sign of the better pitcher? Is it the one that gets the ump to call a pitcher strike, right? So, it, it, or is it the one that lights up the technology? So, you is it the one that says that Hawkeye is going to say is in the zone or not? And and you can argue both ways, right? Uh, in terms of gameplay, I think the umpire matters more. If you can fool an umpire, you've got yourself a strike, and it counts as a strike in the game. But umpires can be wrong. And in fact. Only 83% of all called strikes in 2019 were recorded by technology as being in the zone. And 7% of pitches out of the zone, they were called a strike. So, you know, you can see that umpires don't get it wrong. And, of course, we know that technology has glitches themselves. You know, technology can go horribly wrong as well. Um, but I... I you know, in theory, I think it's superior um, uh, to to have the technology call it because then you aren't dependent on the exact umpire to determine a strike, right? I think that umpires sometimes range too much more than technology gets wrong, and I think it's more defining to have a well-defined strike zone for all of baseball. Um, and I think that baseball is head is recognizing that somewhat, and they're heading towards having robo umps. And, uh, you know, as soon as robo-umps come, the exact debate and discussion that I'm having now with WPDI versus CSW, it's going to highlight that difference uh, and, and to show which one makes more sense and not. And it is a debate, uh, but I, I think that effectiveness of pitcher, I think I'd, I'd rather the technology at this point. You know, Ariel, what it, when I was thinking about it, what it came down to for me is how you want to define these terms. And they're both perfectly accurate ways to define it. 
and in particular, the idea that umpires, uh, also you mentioned in the article, and I thought of at the same time, was how well the catcher frames pitches or doesn't frame pitches. You know, some catchers give away strikes because they catch them awkwardly or, or clumsily, whereas, as we know, other catchers are excellent at taking a ball off the plate and moving it onto the plate and fooling the umpire that way. And it seems like if you want to look at it from a gameplay point of view, that's something you want to take into account. Having said that, my idea when I think about these things is that a metric should be a measure of skill. And then we get into the debate, is being able to fool the umpire a skill of the pitchers? But I don't think that any time a catcher frames a pitch into the zone, that that's something that you should credit to the pitcher because he actually had no he had no bearing on that outcome. Yeah, no, exactly. And I was talking to Alex Fast himself about this. He was on my show this week. Um, that, that's it's a great research topic to debate whether uh, you know he does CSW. What, does an umpire greatly affect CSW? Are are pitchers on the whole getting a, a different CSW with certain umpires versus not, or with catcher framers or with not? It's very possible that a good catcher or or a ump or a bad one can range your your WPDI numbers by five. 10%. And if that is the case, then that's even more of a cry that uh, in terms of skill, we should look at the robotic use of, of whether it fits in the zone versus whether it's called a strike or not. You give 0% for the outcome uh, pitch in the zone on which the batter makes contact because that is a really poor outcome for a pitcher. Could it be or will it be refined for the hardness of the contact and maybe even give negative values for a ball that was really hit very well in the so-called barrel zone of uh, launch angle plus exit velocity that j- tends to generate some sort of 800 or 900 OPS? Yeah, so the, the going further, you know, I, I have three dimensions, the three binary questions for WPDI, but uh, I really want to have a fourth dimension, which would be the binary question of is the contact hard or soft? And that would take us from six outcomes to eight uh, outcomes, and that would add absolutely the great dimension of quality of contact. And then we can obviously split that zero, and it won't be a zero for the the whole contact. It'll be more. Um, Fangraph's data doesn't really have that down uh, for the fourth, but I'm thinking of eventually switching over to Savant data, which does have that and you know has exit velocity and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, in the future, that's definitely the way that I'm going to be refining this. And finally, in the article, Ariel, you compiled a list of 2019 WPDI leaders, and this was in preparation for this season. And it's always gratifying as a researcher back in my day to see when you create a metric and you line everybody up on a, on a past season and the list just lines up with what you think it ought to turn out as. And in this instance, your top five for 2019 WPDI leaders, Blake Snell, Chris Sale, Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, Steven Strasburg, not a bad fantasy rotation. And on down the list is a who's who of the rest of the top pitchers. One name jumped out at me, though, and I've already asked because he's not really a successful pitcher in the way that we would think of a successful pitcher, and that's Robbie Ray of Arizona. He's top 30 on the list. I saw him on a list of 2020 CSW pitchers as well, and he has not been successful, and this year he's just awful. Uh, What does the presence of a Robbie Ray on a list that you've put together tell you about any tweaking that you have to do, or is is any system going to have anomalies? 
Um, it's going to be a little bit of both. I mean, when I see pitchers that I don't think belong on the list, uh, you want to take a little bit of a deeper dive on them to see, wait a minute, is there something there? Or maybe there isn't something there. Uh, in Robbie Ray's case, uh, hey, he's actually gotten uh, worse in CSW. Uh, last year, he was about 340. Now he's down to about 310. Uh, 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 WPDI, that is. Um, he's down to 310 WPDI. Uh, so he, he's actually had a, a drop. This year is is far worse, and he's now merely just average. Um, but, you know, if you take a look at him, you know, see, uh, WPDI does represent deceptiveness. I mean, his strikeout rate has been over 12% in each of the last few years. So he's getting the strikeouts, but the problem is that he's also getting a lot of the walks. He's being deceptive and getting a lot of swinging strikes, but he's throwing a lot more balls than he is strikes. So, uh, you know, that's one reason he's there. Plus his home, we, we mentioned quality of contact. He's given up a lot of home runs. Uh, WPDI doesn't really ca- um, uh, account for home runs. So that's one thing that Ray is just far worse. So when I'm looking into, into Ray's case, uh, you see a player who's, who's much worse. Um, take a guy like Marco Gonzalez. Um, you see a pretty productive pitcher, even though he throws uh, low velocity. He has a lot of outcome A in WPDI. He's getting a lot of swings and misses outside of the zone. So he's somewhat deceptive. Um, is he going to light up uh, everybody's uh, stack cast and radar and like, got to pick up this guy now? No, but he's undervalued in my opinion. He lasts deep into games. He's going to generate some wins. So I think that Marco Gonzalez is undervalued. And, and you know, that's what it's all about. Any new metric is not a be-all, end-all, but it's a way to pick out some people and in some cases say, okay, I think this player doesn't really deserve my attention. And then you say, you know what? I, that's a clue to a person that maybe I'll, I'll take a gamble on. Ariel Cohen is a player projections and valuation expert at Rotographs, and he'll be back later in the pod. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League with Nick and Ray. Right now, though, time in the show, and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets me say with confidence BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, relievers columnist Doug Dennis sorts through the continuing chaos that's roiling bullpens in Colorado, Tampa, Houston, St. Louis, the Mets, and Texas. In Playing Time tomorrow, Dan Marcus looks at the playing time situations of all five teams in the National League Central, including ongoing COVID effects in St. Louis, playing time adjustments in Milwaukee, and a team change in pitching philosophy in Pittsburgh. And in the speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at players who have the skills, but they're searching for the roles. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have those buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse and injury analysis in Matthew Cederholm's column, The Big Hurt, as well as groundbreaking fantasy baseball research and tools like the player projections. They're updated every day. There's daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business.
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. And it's always good to talk with you. Uh, We'll start in New York where uh, something of a surprise and a coronavirus victim of sorts, Marcus Stroman, not positive, not sick, but he has just told the team he wants to sit out the remainder of the season because he's concerned about the virus. Uh, No wonder, given what's gone on uh, outside New York in various places, including St. Louis. But Stroman's done. Uh, We're taking away all his playing time. Uh, Who gets the spot in the rotation in Stroman's spot? And Marcus Stroman will now become a free agent in the offseason without ever throwing a pitch in 2020. Um, It looks like the uh, the name being discussed right now, the name who started uh, this week for him is Robert Gesellman, who was a starter when he first joined the Mets. Unfortunately, his performance as a starter was why he was moved to the bullpen. So it's uh, really not very clear whether whether moving him back into the rotation is a good idea. Uh, he did not pitch especially well when he put when he pitched on Wednesday night. Uh, and so there have been mentions about moving uh, closer Steph Lugo into the role back to the rotation. Uh, that seems unlikely to happen uh, unless the Mets become confident about Edwin Diaz's performance as the closer, uh, because Lugo has been doing very well as the closer. So. A little uncertain about what they're going to do right now. My guess is the Gaselma is a is a first attempt. I believe he went two innings in his first outing, uh, and they may wind up just doing a kind of uh, uh, bullpen with with a starter going a couple of innings and then some bullpen guys when when it's his turn. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah, the old opener technique might be something that more and more teams are forced to try to use. I was looking at Selman's uh, past track record on Baseball HQ's player link page for him, and uh, boy, it's not super impressive. Uh, he had a $3 season in 2018 with a 428 ERA and a 130 whip, you know, just one of those things, and managed to pick up some wins along the way, but uh, also a couple of pretty bad negative dollar years in the mix as well. So uh, anybody who's looking for starting pitching support, I think even if they say Gasolman's going to, you know, take the ball and run with it, I don't know that I'd be real fast on the fab trying to grab him up. No, I think I would just ignore ignore him completely, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, moving along, uh, Madison Bumgarner's having a pretty tough year, and uh, he wasn't pitching well, and now he's been put on the 10-day IL as of Monday with a back problem. They call it a mid-back strain. The team recalled a right-hander by the name of Jeremy Beasley from the alternate training site. Um, What's going to go on, do you think, with Madison Bumgarner, and how concerned should we be about the injury, but just in general? I think we need to be concerned, very concerned at this point about Madison Bumgarner. Uh, in, in Matt Cederholm's Big Hurt column on August the 10th, his best estimate was that Bumgarner would miss at least the rest of August. Uh, and so he wouldn't have much time left if he returns. And unless you think his performance so far is directly related to the back issue that landed him on the DL, you just might want to take a pass at this point. He made four starts before hitting the IL at a 6.25 XERA, a career low command of 1.9. BPV was only 25. His velocity was down 3.6 miles per hour from last season. So, uh, you know, it's the kind of situation where he wasn't pitching well. Maybe it was the result of his injury. Maybe it wasn't. Uh, and then when he comes back, he's going to have time. He's, he's probably not going to be in good throwing shape. Uh, so I think I've just figured that the rest of the season is a lost season for Madison Bumgarner. 
I was looking at his velocity again on the player link page, and you know he's never been a big velocity guy. You think uh, you hear, you know, he's down to 88 for the fastball velocity. You think 88? Oh my goodness! What a what a collapse! But in fact, uh, when I look down this list, the highest his velocity ever was was 92. And I know there's a gulf of difference between 92 and 88, but it's not like this guy was ever bringing it at, you know, 96 miles an hour and he's lost eight and, you know, all hope is lost. That said, I think all hope is lost. Yeah, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I you know, the, the concern is a command, a, a career low command of 1.9, uh, especially with a guy who doesn't throw that hard. Uh, that's a real concern, I think, if he can't find the plate. Uh, and uh, can't strike anybody out. Yeah, command is strikeouts to walks, and in the case of Madison Bumgarner, you know, a command ratio can get worse because you're striking out fewer guys or you're walking more guys, or in Bumgarner's case, both, which is, which oh, is really right. troublesome, especially this year. His walk rate is usually below 2. It's almost up at 4, now 3.6. And his uh, dom rate, his strikeout per 9, is down to 6.8 this year. Obviously, there's something going on with Madison Bumgarner. Whether it's injury-related or not, I think at this point, anybody who took a flyer on Madison Bumgarner in drafts for this year needs to really uh, consider other options. Yeah, very definitely. Philly's made a bunch of moves, Nick, uh, on Tuesday, all of them having to do with pitching. They called up a couple of relief pitchers, Connor Brogdon and Blake Parker, and... Uh, I think the bigger news here, they optioned Nick Pavetta to the alternate training site. Boy, Nick Pavetta is another guy. So much hope and, and uh, optimism about Nick Pavetta over the years, and he just has never seemed to deliver. No, he really hasn't. I mean, he was one of those, got some buzz before the season and expected this might be the year he would break out. And uh, Pavetta, remembers, Pavetta spent two years in the Phillies rotation before being sent to the bullpen in 2019 after he was struggling. He was in contention for a starting spot this year uh, or a high leverage role in the bullpen. Three appearances in 2020, none of them went very well. His last outing, he yielded six earned runs at a third of an inning, uh, and that probably clinched the demotion back to the alternate training site. Could return at some point in 2020, but I sure would not recommend him uh, to fantasy owners, uh, and I don't want him anywhere near my team with that kind of explosive value, uh, uh, a real possibility in his performance. What do we make of these uh, fellows who were called up, uh, Connor Brogdon and Blake Parker? I don't, I don't really see much there that uh, would recommend them to, to uh, fantasy owners at this point. Uh, neither of them are expected to get a whole lot of playing time, and, and uh, I don't see that they're uh, really going to be useful in a fantasy rotation. Well, Parker, we might remember from 2019, he spent some time closing games in Minnesota, and he was actually not too bad, but then he started struggling and eventually was released and joined the Phillies. And so far this year, Nick, 5.04 ERA, not great, not even good. But listen to this, 31 strikeouts, six walks over 25 innings. That's pretty good. That, that is pretty good. You know, that's not bad at all. So if, uh, you know, the strikeouts, the strikeouts look good, the, uh, the walks are not too high. Uh, on the other hand, the, the ERA is not something you want to mess around with. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't think they'll be using him in high leverage situations at this point, uh, but could maybe wind up in a setup role at some point uh, down the road if he, if he continues to get the strikeouts at the pitch relatively well. 
And Brogdon, I don't even think, was among the Philadelphia's top 15 prospects at Baseball HQ's org reports. So uh, this is a really a black box. He's a mystery, so we'll just have to watch and wait and see. But again, if you've got some fab dollars burning a hole in your budget, uh, maybe <laughs> maybe uh, the Brogdon is not the guy to really splash out on. Uh, yeah, I think I, you know, I think there are better options out there. For sure. Last week, Nick, we talked about uh, some problems in the Pittsburgh bullpen, and uh, that seems to have solidified a little bit. Uh, Keone Kayla, who went into the season as the obvious, shall we say, closer, uh, he got COVID, and he's been uh, off the team for the since the start of the season, really, and uh, he's just returned. So I assume that he's going straight to the top of the bullpen and will be closing games. Yeah, I assume so as well. I mean, that's what we're we're certainly looking at. Uh, we've given him a, a bump in saves at 25% at this point. Uh, and if it becomes really clear that they're going to use him in the ninth inning, we'll bump that up even more. Uh, he had appeared in 48 games for Pittsburgh since they acquired him at the trade deadline in 2018. Uh, put up a 2.40 ERA and a one whip and 55 strikeouts in 45 innings. Uh, just to pitch really, really well for the Pirates. So given all the problems they've had in their bullpen and the inability to keep anybody healthy, uh, Certainly he is the person most likely to get the saves at this point in time. Rick Green covering the story for Playing Time today. And uh, he's also uh, deallocated Richard Rodriguez, who, because of all the injuries, had so, sort of crept up the bullpen ladder to the point where he was being considered to close games. We've taken away all his saves and given them to Keone Kayla. Right. At this point, that we, we have done that. And uh, certainly if, if uh, Kayla stays healthy, I would expect him to be out there closing game for the Pirates the rest of the way. Now, just the other night, Nick, I was watching the Mets play because one of my uh, star players in, on my mixed league teams is Jeff McNeil, a multi-position guy, a really good hitter, as we know. And I, I just tuned in in time to watch him crash into the outfield fence and be carted off. And uh, I understand you've got some updated news on Jeff McNeil's status. The, the news at this point is really very positive. X-rays were negative. Uh, Mets are saying it's just a bone bruise to the knee in these day-to-day. Uh, likely we'll get an, AR, an MRI to confirm that diagnosis. But uh, for now, we don't expect him to miss too much playing time. We've reduced his playing time by 5%. Uh, and uh, maybe that bruise will heal quickly and he'll be back out there very soon. One of the most interesting columns at BaseballHQ.com, and I know they're all interesting, but I really enjoy reading the Market Pulse column uh, that's written by Brad Coleman, the former Major League General Manager. And uh, earlier this week, he put out a Market Pulse column talking about, you know, there's bull markets for players and bear markets, he calls them, and he's looking at ownership changes, uh, new guys coming into the league, who's bidding what, all that kind of stuff. And uh, one of the players that uh, jumped onto his list is an infielder in San Francisco, Donovan Solano. Donovan Solano has really been getting some play on the internet over the last week or so. He's, he's been hitting very, very well, but you know, you've got to ask yourself, who is this guy? Well, Donovan Solano has a, uh, a 257 batting average and a 636 OPS in five major league seasons. Um, never given fantasy players much to get excited about. He hit 189 with Miami in 2015. Uh, hit 227 in nine games for the Yankees in 2016. Spent the next two years trying to reinvent his game in the minors and and uh, had some success. Hit for th- a 303 average. Uh, and, and in 2019, suddenly reappeared in the big leagues after a 322 batting average over 24 games in AAA. And with San Francisco last year, he got even better. Spraying the ball around the field uh, 
all over the place. The 330 batting average and 215 at bats. Uh, although an unsustainable 41% hit rate. So, so far this season, uh, he's gone to really a ridiculous level. Uh, an unworldly 53% hit percentage, uh, batting average over 400. Uh, do you think he can keep that up? His teammates seem to think that he can. Uh, I uh, and uh, Brad Coleman are kind of skeptical about that. Solano has very minimal power. He hasn't stolen a base since uh, a Major League base since 2014. So really what this guy is, is a batting average dude. Uh, and if he can keep his that fit that, that hit rate up and keep his batting average over 400, then he has some value in this kind of a short season. But he's not going to give you much beyond that. Unless your league counts uh, extra bases or doubles because he's leading baseball, uh, at least in the National League, he's got nine doubles already, which has contributed to a 661 slugging percentage, which is, you know, Barry Bonds kind of level almost. And uh, his OPS is uh, over 1,100, which is uh, pretty impressive for a guy who's not really that terrific a hitter, although he's always been a, a relatively decent uh, OPS guy, 715 with the Yankees in a handful of games in 2016, and uh, 815 last year with the Giants in uh, in a little bit longer of a like a half season or so. So um, whatever he's doing, he seems to know how to hit doubles, and uh, I don't think there's a lot of home run power there. But a guy who can get on base and he's standing on second a lot of the time is going to probably score some runs and might be a sneaky path to value. But I think the question that you raise, and I think it's a good one, is. As well as he's played now, can you anticipate that it's going to stay on that same kind of level? Is he going to be able to maintain this momentum? And I have to say, I'm not going to say it can't happen, because in a short season anything can happen. But I would also say, if I were a betting man, I would probably bet against it. Yeah, I think I would too, but let, let me flip the, let's flip the, the uh, scenario here. And we are talking about a short season. We're, we've got very little time left. And could a month of a 400 batting average help your help your team? Uh, in that case, if you can if you can uh, not worry about the lack of uh, RBIs and the lack of runs scored and the lack of uh, power, uh, yeah, maybe so. That's a really decent batting average and might be worth taking a shot on for one spot in your lineup. And another name that jumped out at me from the uh, Brad Coleman's Market Pulse column is Antonio Senzatela uh, in Colorado, the right-hander. And uh, Brad says that it's an interesting way he puts it. He says, buying into the narrative of this year, he's pitched very well at Coors Field, is quite a speculative hill to climb. And if you can stomach rostering a Rockies pitcher, Senzatela, he says, makes for an intriguing consideration. And, and Nick, th this raises an interesting question. How much extra leeway are you willing to give when you're considering your fab bidding and your free agent acquisitions or, or waiver claims or whatever? Because it's such a short season, rather than a longer season where things are more likely to even out to true talent level. Antonio Senzatale is having a pretty good year. He had a really nice spring training going before the virus hit. How could you justify putting in a bid on Senzatale if it was just you making your own decisions? I think it depends upon, well, I, you know, I think the first thing you've got to look at is, are there other options out there who can give you, give you more and be less risky? Uh, and with pitching, I think usually that, that's true. Uh, so that I would, but, but the interesting question in this season, maybe the, the real, uh, the real answer depends upon your league rules. If, uh, if you can pull this guy in and out of your lineup and don't have to count all of his stats, 
then it's certainly worth taking a shot and seeing what happens. If, on the other hand, you have to take the bad stats if they suddenly return, then it may not be worth the risk. And I think that's what you have to determine on your own is uh, if once you draft an Antonio, once you pick up an Antonio Cincinnati, do his stats count every week all the time? Or, or is there a possibility here that, uh, that you can just pull him out after a bad start and say, all right, I'm done with this guy for the year and I'm going to drop him real fast? Yeah, it hasn't been a super tremendous history for Antonio Sensatella. I was reviewing his record, and uh, he's been an $11 pitcher so far this year, which for free is not a bad value. But boy, what a change it is from 2019. He was minus $19. His expected ERA was 554. His real ERA was 671, and he had a 175 whip. I mean, a 671-175 is going to kill your decimals if he's in there for, you know, a full lo- boatload of innings. Absolutely. And so, uh, I, you know, as I say, I'm skeptical. And I think as far as starting pitchers go, there are lots of better choices out there. All right, Nick. Always fun to talk to with you about the uh, National League, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has been our man on the National League beat low these many years at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Hello, PD. Happy third week of the season. I know, third week of the season, and for some reason it feels like it's half over, you know, because it's also <laughs> telescoped. I've been talking to lots of people and uh, uh, about, you know, have we gone far enough to make decisions and all this kind of stuff, and you think, really, no, it's only three weeks of the season, but of course you've got so much added pressure from the fact that it may only be three weeks in, but it's not 23 weeks to go. Yeah, the calendar helps in that regard, because even though it, you know, in baseball terms, it's, you know, from the start of the season, it's the third week of April, kind of really feels like August. So, you know, I'm acting like it's August, which, you know, is natural. So it's good. Yeah. And that's what you got to focus on is, is what's to come, I think, rather than what's been. And, uh, in Chicago, they focused on what was, which was Tim Anderson on the, uh, IL with a groin problem, but he was activated earlier this week, uh, batted leadoff. Uh, what happens in the lineup and, uh, how do we like Tim Anderson looking ahead? Yeah, there could have been some interesting questions that got raised here, but they got, uh, deferred at least because uh, the, tr- the corresponding move for Anderson coming back from the DL was Lurie Garcia going on the DL and Garcia had been on fire uh, moving around between he was started at second base. And then when Madrigal came up and Anderson went on the IL, he went over to third base. So there could have been some ripples here, maybe even for Luis Robert, who has sort of gone cold in the last week, but all of those questions get deferred until uh, Garcia comes back from a sprained thumb, I believe it is. So for now, Anderson goes back in his usual spot at shortstop and probably leading off most nights. So if you were uh, if you were waiting on Tim Anderson for the last week and a half or two weeks, it's it's very good news. If you were if you were riding Lurie Garcia for the last week and a half, not as good news. I'm wondering what you think, Ray, as a guy who's been projecting players for a long time. Tim Anderson won the batting title last year very famously. I think he hit about 345 or something like that. And and the underlying metrics simply didn't support a batting average anywhere near that. I think his XBA was under 300. And yet here he came out of the gate this uh, season, 333, 10 for 30, with pretty much exactly the same metrics. At some point, do we just have to throw up our hands and say, Tim Anderson's going to have a high batting average even though he really ought not to? I, that point can certainly come. Uh, this We're not at that point yet. I, if you take a look at, like you say, the underlying metrics didn't really support 
uh, the three forty five, three thirty five last year. He hit. He had a forty percent batting average on balls in play. Hitting four hundred on balls in play is roughly the highest level I've ever seen sustainable. And when I say sustainable, I mean I think the only person I've ever seen sustain it is Ichiro, um, who certainly had a combination of you know contact, contact ability, ability to spray the ball all over the field, and and great wheels at his peak. So uh, you know Tim Anderson has some of those skills, but but not all of them. So I, I would throw in a little bit of shade at that forty percent BABIP of uh, 400 BABIP from last year. So he came back for the first 40 at bats this year and he was at 460. So, you know, yeah, yeah he, he's not going to keep doing that for sure. I'm, I'm much more comfortable calling regression on the 460 BABIP over 39 at bats than the 400 BABIP over 500. But is he going to regress to like 30%, uh, 30% hit rate, 300 BABIP, 35%? Because uh, the he had a 38% a couple of years ago in 2016, and that was in 400-plus at-bats. I mean, he went back more towards normal, around 30 for a couple of years, then back up to 40. And then uh, so far this year, as you said, 46. And nobody believes uh, the 46, but what should we believe? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great point. And our research says that the bad, BABIP for a batter reverts to their own established long-term average once they establish a long-term average. So Anderson's 400 BABIP from last year is not, doesn't stand alone on its own, but it's a component in that now. So he's probably, I'd be comfortable saying he's a north of 350, 35% BABIP. So, uh, you know, the noise between 350 and 400 is probably where the, or 460 as we're seeing so far this year, the noise in there is probably uh, the, sort of sort of the range of outcomes. I, I, I would have baselined his BABIP at probably something like 350, 360 this year. And you mentioned Ichiro, who was a line drive machine, and Anderson has not been that. His uh, line drive rate has been around 20, 20. 1% sort of, uh, 24 last year, 30 so far this year, We even if we expect that to regress. But what I'm interested in is his ground ball rate. He's been always at right around 50% ground balls, and we know that that can be a recipe for an elevated BABIP because more balls are going to sneak through than if they're cans of corn. Even medium hit ground balls can find holes, and he can run, which means he's going to get, you know, if he gets two leg hits a week, all of a sudden that makes his BABIP look a lot better than if he's, you know, lumbering up the line like Rowdy Tellez or something. Yeah, that's exactly right. And obviously, as you mentioned earlier, earlier, each row of the line drive machine line drives are your best news in terms of uh, you know outcomes for BABIP. But ground balls are much preferable to fly balls. If you took uh, Anderson's, you know, he's got a career fifty uh, percent ground ball rate and a thirty percent fly ball rate. If you flip those around, his BABIP is going to go down the the levels you were talking about earlier, that thirty thirty two percent level, even given his speed, just because. Speed doesn't help on fly balls. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, unless you're trying to leg a double into a triple and ha- happen to right. have found the gap, right? Uh, that that raises another question about Tim Anderson. The last couple of years, 20 home runs, 18 home runs, despite fly ball rates uh, 30%-ish or below, and his uh, home run per fly ball rate has been pretty elevated, 14, 14, 17 in the last three years, 33 this year in a very short sample. But is, is this an instance where a guy is going to be able to hit 20 home runs on a per season basis consistently, despite not getting the ball in the air very often at all. You know, it's, this gets to be the most frustrating part of the projecting process, because I look at 
that home run per flight uh, per fly ball track that you just noted, where in his rookie season in 2016, he was at 12%. Then he ticked up to 14%, 14% a couple of times. Last year, his best year, uh, Homer per fly was 17, 17% where he hit 18 home runs. But now you look at his home runs and his home run column looks pretty stable, 17, 20, 18, the last three years. And you think, okay, he's established a level. My problem with that and the reason it gets frustrating is we played with three different balls for the last three years. And it looks to me like his home run per fly is tracking exactly with the jumpier baseball so if that's gonna if that's regressing and it seems like it is in the first couple of weeks of 2020 here i might want to take him all the way back to his 2016 level of 12 percent home rubber fly which is going to say no that's more like you know a dozen 14 home runs in a full season not 20 but i don't know and then of course he's been a, a five category player as well because he has been able to steal some bases peaked at 26 in 2018 and uh, even uh, though he scaled it back last year to 17 that's still an incredibly valuable skills package and production package 100% and in terms of core skills i i think the speed at least for the next few years until you know speed's a skill of the young so he's not going to have it forever but for the next couple of years i think speed and speed and batting average are really his foundational skills here because we said earlier with the ground balls and a high bat but not only is he getting on base a lot but there's a lot of singles in there which is a lot of opportunities to run which me and he makes you know decent enough contact that you know just on a on a volume basis he's getting the first base a lot even though he doesn't really walk that much so Combine all of those things, times on first base opportunities to run with the established good wheels, like you say. And I, I think if I'm inking anything to his projection for the next few years, it's that 15, 15 to 20 stolen bases for sure. Moving along, uh, a story that really caught a lot of us by surprise, Giancarlo Stanton's injured. Uh, <laughs> who would have thought? <laughs> I, I could uh, now he's... <laughs> He's got a uh, hamstring complaint and uh, looks like he could be out for up to a month, and a month is a long time in a two-month season, you know. So uh, Chris Olson covered the story for Baseball HQ's Playing Time today. Uh, What are we looking at for Giancarlo Stanton, and uh, who benefits from him being out? Yeah, a month is a long time in a two-month season, obviously. And, you know, Chris correctly notes that the Yankees are probably just going to shift their attention at this point to trying to get Stanton ready for the postseason. So it, it gets hard to project any meaningful opportunity, any meaningful contribution from Stanton, even in if he's back for the last three weeks of September or so, if he's on time here. The good news from a regular season Yankee lineup point of view is they've got a cast of several who can jump into the mix here. Uh, the the candidate to take the DH at bat seems to be Mike Ford, uh, who is somebody who's had some intriguing skills. He popped up in Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column this week as somebody uh, who had good skills and was just in search of playing time. And lo and behold, Stanton has bequeathed in the playing time here. Uh, Mike Talkman had a very good year last year as sort of the Yankee fourth or fifth outfielder who was pressed into everyday duty, and he should pick up some more bats here. Uh, Chris also mentioned uh, Clint Frazier, who was in exile at the alternate camp and has sort had sort of a star crossed career with uh, the Yankees over the last few years with some adventures in the outfield, some outspokenness and reasons to be in the headlines. You don't want to be. Uh, and oddly enough on Wednesday night, uh, you know, despite talking about Ford and Talkman, it was Frazier who picked up a start in the outfield Wednesday night and hit a home run. So maybe he's going to uh, finally stake a claim at uh, sticking around on in, in the lineup here. So th- these guys are all interesting. They're all going to play, get, get an opportunity to play. And let's not forget that Miguel Andohar is also in 
the alternate camp too, waiting for one of these guys to hit 180 for a couple of weeks to get another chance to come up and be at DH because that's where that's where Andujar's best value probably is at this point too. And with Stanton not blocking at the eighth spot, Andujar's got to be looking at his chops too. And talking of Mike Talkman, one of the surprises there, he's been relatively frisky on the base paths. Yeah, and boy, when you know speed is tough to find in general. So when you see them, the bags popping up from somebody uh, un- unexpected that gets you excited. So uh, you know he's picked up four stolen bases in you know just a couple of weeks here, and there's nothing in his track record that really supported that. But you know, a huge part of stolen bases is the opportunity and the aggressiveness, and he's shown that so far. So you know, if four is on his way to you know. 10 in the course of a two-month season that's going to win a lot of people a lot of weeks exactly so in tampa right-hander charlie morton was placed on the 10-day injured list on monday he's got shoulder inflammation and uh i know i've read at baseball hq in the big hurt and i'll be talking with uh matt cedarholm a little later about this uh shoulder inflammation takes in a lot of ills yeah, it does, and I, I think I've seen this referred to fatigue and inflammation and you know discomfort. All of those terms sort of get inter- applied interchangeably here, and of course, in general, anything going on in the shoulder is more concerning than anything going on in the elbow. Not that either one is good. So, you know, Morton is playing this down and making it sort of sound like he'll just miss a start, and you know, for all of the reasons you just mentioned, that seems wildly optimistic. Uh, the We'll have to wait and see what actually happens. The short-term beneficiary here is probably Trevor Richards, at least because of the telltale sign that he came in in the long relief role after Morton left in the third inning of the uh, start where he uh, announced that he had the shoulder issue. So Richards is lined up and stretched out to start behind him. Jalen Beeks uh, is also uh, a candidate there, either to piggyback with Richards or to get a, get some starts in his own right. Beeks had runs of really interesting results last year where he would come in as the the primary reliever the second man in and hang up two three four really good innings against a good part of the lineup and that's tended to to wear off a little bit late last year but he's looked pretty good so far this year too so there are two you know obviously this Tampa team is really good they have all they have a lot of depth they can withstand losing Morton more than most but Richards and Beek seem like the short-term beneficiaries and I was going to say that given the Rays propensity to jiggle and shuffle and mess around with their pitching in all kinds of unconventional ways they may be one of the teams in all of baseball best positioned to deal with an injury to their ace or near ace like a guy like charlie morton which would be disastrous for a lot of teams the rays just say okay well we'll have an opener a bulk guy another bulk guy two more openers you know and they'll just shuffle the cards and deal the hand and they'll play it as it comes which is a real plus for them but it's a real minus if you're a charlie morton owner and it's kind of a minus for anybody who's trying to figure out uh, in DFS situations or in daily start type situations, which way do I look in this, uh, in this whole configuration? Because the Rays will just confound you with, if you try to make any kind of plan. That's right. And the other thing about it is the, the Rays are of course, like everybody else, taking advantage of the expanded roster. I think we've got another week or so at 28 guys on the roster. So as long as we're doing that, then, you know, the Rays have even more options here. They'll get a, If Morton's not back by the time they go down to 26, they'll, they'll get a little more tested by that, but clearly still well within the capacity to, uh, to, to mix and match through nine innings at a time every fifth day when they need to. And talking about the Rays uh, pitching, they seem to be shuffling guys around at the end of the bullpen uh, as well. Uh, they 
seem to be moving Nick Anderson into a closer role as much as they will ever put anybody into a closer role. Uh, Things are really fluid in the Rays' bullpen at the best of times. Has anything solidified there, do you think? Yeah, it it seems like they're using Anderson to me. I I actually, they were playing the Red Sox this week, and I was actually surprised because I saw Anderson come in in the ninth inning of a eight to two game or something like that, which got me kind of scurrying back to see what's been going on and what the, what the usage patterns were here. And, you know, one thing I've always thought that I could detect in the Rays, the way the Rays handle their bullpen is they are very focused on keeping their, their arms fresh. And rather than assigning a guy a role, if they're, they, they would rather have a guy not pitch the second, the third day in a row, they almost have an every other day bullpen going on. I'm looking at Anderson's log here and he has pitched on back-to-back days. Well, now twice this year. Um, but for, you know, minimal pitch counts when, when he does. And it seems to me that he's more fireman than closer, but much like Josh Hader in Milwaukee, the, those roles can overlap. And sometimes the fireman does get the save. Um, and after that, you know, there's been a little bit of attrition there. Alvarado, Castillo, uh, you, you know, they're, Oliver Drake, you know, they're, Kevin Cash will use anybody at any time is almost the most definitive thing I could say about that bullpen at this point. And they were even using Andrew Kittredge, as uh, as I remember, but he uh, hit the IL as well, or he was taken out of a game. I don't know if he's officially on the injured list yet. Yeah, Kittredge and Drake, like I said, and the embarrassment of riches here is crazy. Let's not remember that they gave up Emilio Pagan in the offseason, too. So they had that many guys, and it seems like, the to, to me, the guy who's stuck, may, who may be rising here is... Castillo, you know, he had, he had some experience in a closer role for them at, at, at stretches last year, and I think he might be pecking his way back toward that, uh, you know, as sort of being a you know a one B to Anderson. But you know, these 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 are all day to day propositions in the as, as the Rays bullpen turns. And finally, Ray, uh, Franchi Cordero made quite a bit of uh, interesting news when he first came over to the American League. There was a lot of fab frenzy, and uh, I know in American League tout there were some very large bids, one of which wasn't mine, um, just because uh, I didn't think I wanted to bid as much as it would take. And what do you know, Franchi Cordero has a risk problem. He went on the 60-day IL, and the 60-day IL is basically season over for Franchi Cordero. So what's going to happen in Kansas City, and who's going to benefit from Franchi Cordero basically losing all all of his at-bats. Yeah, there's a, about a three-hop cascade going on here. I think what happens is now that the outfield there gets pretty thin, and it is pretty thin, I think Merrifield stays in the outfield and doesn't go to second base as much. Alex Gordon still holds down an outfield spot. And I think the third one now becomes pretty clearly Hunter Dozier, who's just back from the IL and playing for the first couple of days this week. Um, And if Dozier's locked in the outfield, that's good news on the infield for Michael Franco, who probably had won a job anyway, because he was really only playing third base every day to start because Dozier was out. But Franco's been very good. Um, And Franco's, you know, interesting to me because he's always been a very streaky hitter. And he's one of those guys who just struck me as I saw him get off the to a good start in the first week. Like this is a guy who we've seen have very good quarter seasons, half seasons, and could just go nuts for 60, ga- 60 games. And if he stays on the upswing, uh, you know, he's cooled down since then, but you know, he's got four home runs already. And I think he's probably going to be locked at third base and not be, not be pulling Dozier back in and same at first base with uh, Ryan O'Hearn, probably carrying a good side of the platoon there. So uh, the, 
Dozier stays in the outfield with Merrifield and Gordon, and the infield stays a little more solidified too. I was looking at Michael Franco Ray on his player link page at baseballhq.com, and what jumped out at me was uh, over the last seven days, he's got an OPS right near 1,000, but his overall OPS for the year is around 780, which means somewhere in there there's a 500 or a 550. <laughs> and boy, oh boy, like you said, he's a streaky hitter, and the problem with streaky hitters, it's like trying to time the stock market. You think you're buying when everything's going up, then all of a sudden, you know, some politician says something somewhere or a, a disease breaks out, and all of a sudden you're investing vanishes in smoke it's pretty tough to make calls on guys like michael franco it is and the, the weird thing about him that i have never really figured out he's sort of been an enigma to me for years is he makes really good contact for a guy who has some power you know his, his power is pretty average but it should play well with a, a, a contact rate that historically is stuck in the mid 80s which is near elite at this point you know if, if, when you put a lot of balls in play you know, more good things are going to happen. And to your point about the about the ups and downs, those things should theoretically be smoothing out more quickly, but that never really seems to happen for him. It's kind of maddening. <laughs> On the other hand, if you expect that he's going to finish at, you know, 800 OPS or something like that, then you just ride it out because unless you're playing in some kind of weekly format where the stats are accruing weekly, then what you want is what's at the end. And, and you can kind of be a little more confident that Franco is not going to be a 550 or 600 OPS guy. He's going to be a 780, 800 OPS guy just as long as you're patient with him. Well, yeah, in a normal season, that would be true. But of course, uh, right. you know, over two months, he could just hang up, hang that five fifty six hundred OPS, and for over the sixty games, and leave you uh, holding the bat. I suppose it, it would be interesting if we had quick access to some kind of tool that allowed us to really um, look at maybe the last couple of years on on intervals of our choosing a week at a time, four weeks at a time, eight weeks at a time would be really helpful. And something I noticed about uh, his contact rate, it's down pretty precipitously this year. You mentioned he's been in the low to mid 80%. He's down around 78 so far this year. I mean, again, it's a fairly small sample, but is it a worrying sign that all of a sudden he seems to be uh, a little more liberal with the swings? It's when I'm trying to figure that out, I always go to the, uh, the, the game logs are the weekly splits and you know it, we're at the point where the the noise of these things tend to linger a little bit while in the in, in the stats like for instance he went over four with three strikeouts on opening day and that trashed his numbers for a little while there um but then as you know if you look at his contact rate by week it was 43 percent for that first half week of the season and then it went up to 83 88 which is totally normal for him and he was more productive and now this week it's down to 64 again because he struck out twice the other night you know that's, that's literally that, that that's literally the grains of sand we're sifting through here so i think i think that's probably more noise than anything but you know like anybody else when he isn't going well he's going to be prone to strike out more so i can't tell if that's quite a leading or a trailing indicator but yeah concerning all right ray thanks very much for helping us out uh, always interesting always informative and we'll talk to you again in a week's time you bet Petey. ray murphy is a baseball hq columnist and co-general manager of the site he's also our man on the american league beat here at baseball hq radio when we return, we'll have our feature expert interview with Matt Cedarholm, fantasy researcher and the injury analyst for the Big Hurt column at BaseballHQ.com. Plenty of aches and pains coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. I was asking you, sir, uh, why it is that baseball wants this bill passed. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they'd want it passed is to keep baseball going as the highest baseball sport 
that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. I'm not in here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the hundred years at the present time. Well, Mr. Mantle, do you uh, have any observations with reference to uh, the affability of the antitrust laws to baseball? Well, my, my views are just about the same as Casey's. <laughs> Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview with Matthew Cedarholm, fantasy researcher and the injury analyst for the Big Hurt column at BaseballHQ.com. Matt, welcome to the show. I think this is your first time. Yeah, I've been, I've been a writer for a long time, or it feels like a long time, so... Uh, yeah, it's, it's probably been probably overdue that I'm here. Definitely overdue. Uh, before we talk about injuries and the big hurt, uh, Matt, how many fantasy teams are you running this season and what's the split between your March drafts and your July drafts? Um, so I, I'm doing five, um, fairly standard rotisserie leagues. And then I do a score sheet league every year that we, uh, we drafted first pitch Arizona. And, uh, you know, now, now that I've said that, I'm worried that we won't get to do that next year. But, um, but five, five kind of standard leagues. One is my home league that I've been in for almost 30 years now. And uh, all but one of the drafts was in March. The, um, my, actually, my home league draft, we, we put off until July uh, until we figured out what Major League Baseball was doing. And how are your teams doing? Well, um, um, I, it's kind of a mix. I have uh, I have a team in the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational that's doing okay. Uh, my home league team's doing very well. My score sheet team's doing very well. And um, you know, I'm in the uh, Baseball HQ Wonk League, and I don't know what happened there, but I'm in last place, and I'm probably about thirty points out of. 14th place so uh that team has just has just completely tanked that's a keeper league though so is it uh in a short season like this is it going to be possible to do any dump trading and try to shore up for future seasons um it's possible i mean i've got a few players that are doing pretty well so um and and they're some of my higher price players so as we get as we get uh, further into the season there could be some uh some opportunities there I ask everybody who comes on uh, just what your takeaways have been from the first 20 games of this short season. What have you noticed about the way fantasy is working, about the way Major League Baseball is working that has caught your eye? Um, you know, maybe it's just my teams, but I feel like nobody is running. Um, uh, I haven't taken a look at anything official, but I, I, I just feel like stolen bases are way down from last year. Um, that could be... Um, in, in part because the national league's using DHs now and they might, they, you know, the uh, national league managers might have decided that they're going to adapt more, you know, major league, uh, more American league strategies uh, instead of, you know, running as much. And it could just be, it could be a number of factors could be the weather. Um, so that's the biggest thing I've noticed. And, and aside from that, it's, um, it's everything you'd expect of such a small sample size. 
players that that players that you figured were going to be great have been awful. Players that you you know wouldn't take a second look at have been great. So uh, you know that that part hasn't surprised me very much. Yeah, the short season makes for some pretty wild variants. I'm talking about that with Ariel Cohen on this podcast as well, and it's difficult for him as a guy who projects and values players to try to figure out what to make of all this variance caused by the small sample size. It's an interesting conundrum for sure, and uh, I don't think there's any doubt that stolen bases are way down. And I'm curious, in your five rotisserie-style leagues, have you noticed that the categories, stolen bases or otherwise, are clumping more than they have been in the past, or is this pretty much what you'd expect uh, from a three-week-old season? Um, yeah, that's that's a good question. I haven't I haven't really looked at that, but you know, one of one of the things that I thought would be a big factor for this season is because of COVID, because of the the expanded rosters uh, and, and the whole situation, is that you'd see more spread uh, uh, playing time spread. You'd see more players getting playing time and, you know, the, the players who you can reliably count on to start, you know, pretty much seven days a week, you know, might, might get a week off or might get a day off every week. So um, I haven't noticed anything in the standings specifically other than steals being way down. You're the writer of The Big Hurt. It's Baseball HQ's injury analysis column. How long have you been doing that column? I, th- I think this is my fourth year now. And how'd you get involved with it? You're not a medical person, are you? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a finance guy and an economist. But uh, So about 25 years ago, I, I was in a particular draft in my home league, and there were a couple of players. One had a shoulder injury. And I thought for sure he'd be fine, and I paid full price for him. There was another guy with a back injury who I didn't want to touch at all, and I think he missed the first week of the season and came on and had you know 35 saves. Um, so at that point, I decided that injuries, understanding injuries, was going to be very important to my fantasy success. And I started just really doing research, understanding what different injuries were, understanding you know, what, what you could expect, what the risks were, you know, how long guys might be out given, given the injuries that they had. And then uh, a few years ago when Rick Wilton retired, um, there was an opportunity and I had, you know, been looking at this for quite a while. And so I, I spoke to the brain trust at baseball HQ and they, um, they agreed that, that we certainly needed injury coverage. And what we wanted to do was take a, a bit more of a data-driven approach, which, I, which I've tried to do. Sometimes, um, you know, you can look at the data more than others. It's, it's part science and part art, but, uh, you know, I've tried to really bring the data into it as much as possible. Well, that's an interesting question to me too, because I like data more than I like art as much as I like art when I'm going to the movies. I want to know what, what, what your sources of information are, what the sources of analysis are. So I'm curious about how the big hurt gets made every week. And at the risk of going behind the scenes at the sausage factory, Matt, uh, walk us through the process. Uh, you, you read about somebody getting hurt and what, what, uh, what springs into action. Yeah. So, so the first thing I do, so we publish, uh, three times a week. Um, there's a, there's a new column every week and it gets updated, um, over the weekend. Um, so each time I, I need to either, either start a new column or I need to update, 
Um, I take a look and I go through all the injury news since basically the last time I wrote something. Um, and I look at the players. Um, the first decision is which players to cover. And, you know, because there seems to be, you know, a, a, a hundred uh, uh, short relievers that are injured at any given time. And, and very few people care about those guys. Um, and then I, you know, I try not to spend too much time on the, on the real obvious injuries where, where, you know, even the casual fan could probably understand what, what the recovery is going to be like. Um, the, the real trick is that uh, major league teams don't, don't really give you a lot of information. You know, you can't look at MRIs, you can't look at x-rays. Um, a lot of times you'll just, you, you get a very basic description of what the player's injury is. Sometimes you don't even get that. So you really have to play detective a lot. It's, it's, um, it's, it's partly understanding the medical issues and, and, the, and the recoveries and all of that. But a lot of it is kind of reading into what teams are saying and how they're saying it, because you're never going to get all the information that the team has. So you kind of have to figure it out on your own as you go along. You mentioned a, a database. What injury databases do you access to find out, you know, stuff like, uh, I imagine the database must have a whole bunch of uh, ACL tears and a sort of range of outcomes as far as how long it takes to recover, the level of recovery, those kinds of things. What are your information sources? Yeah, so we have, and I can't, I, I, I don't go out and actually get the data, so I can't even tell you who produces it, but we have a database that we, that we get every season. It basically has every injury uh, at any level of pro ball. So uh, from rookie league, uh, I, I'm not sure if the um, if the instructional leagues are included, but for, from rookie league all the way up to the major leagues, every single injury that's occurred um, and data on the player, you know, birth date, height, weight, um, all of that, the, the, the nature of the injury, uh, how long the player was out, you know, when the when they were first hurt, when they returned. So it's it's a pretty extensive database, and I do some things within that to to sort of classify injuries and, and group them together, so it's easier to to look at the data. But we have going back to 2012 now, so we're getting close to 10 years of of data of pretty much every injury of every professional baseball player in the U.S. Do you ever get an injury that happens and you look at the database and it's just not in there, this particular injury, or are they almost all there? I mean, it must be, there must be a surprise once in a while. Well, you know, what, what happens oftentimes is that the, the description of the injury is very vague, doesn't have all the detail, or, um, you know, that a lot of times a player can get hurt and the nature of the injury as they, as they evaluate him more changes over time. So, you know, he might go on the IL for a sore elbow. And then after, you know, a few weeks, it's, it's, you know, well, we think he might have a damaged UCL and then eventually he gets Tommy John surgery. Well, the database doesn't track how the nature of the injury changed over time. So there, there are times I have to go in. Um, I also access, uh, I forget, I, I don't remember the, the name, but it's, you can easily Google it. Uh, there's a guy who keeps uh, a Google sheet of every Tommy John surgery. I've seen that. Um, so I'll, yeah, I'll use that a lot too. And I mean, he's got all the information you could possibly want to, to slice and dice it. So, 
Um, I'll use that as well, you know, when guys have Tommy John, but a lot of times I have to go in and if I'm looking at a particular type of injury, you know, say I'm looking at a groin strain and I want to see, you know, how players have done, I might have to go in and tweak the data a little bit and look at different players and, and make some decisions about, well, you know, this guy didn't really have one, you know, this guy had a more serious strain. Um, so it's, it, it's not a hundred percent straightforward, but, but we kind of do rely on, on the database for a lot of the information. I know in uh, your most recent column, the the one that's current this week, yeah, you mentioned something about uh, Joe Kelly. He has a shoulder inflammation. And I was talking with Ray Murphy about this uh, on the show earlier. And, and shoulder inflammation just is such a vague, nebulous term for a million different things that could be going wrong in there, right? And if they don't come up with anything more specific and that it's not really in their interest to do that, and there are HIPAA rules that kind of don't allow them to do a lot of uh, revelation about what's actually wrong with somebody who's hurt uh, without his permission. And there's all those kind of things that go on. So sometimes uh, when you look at uh, uh, an injury report, it says Joe Kelly inflamed shoulder. It's kind of just a starting point and you have to keep watching it. I'm going to guess because shoulder inflammation could end up being rotator cuff or bursa sac, or there's a million things going on in a shoulder. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's that's kind of what I'm talking about when, when teams you're right, the, t- the team has no has no motivation to give you the full injury story. You know, it's um, depending on the player and his role and, and things that that's kind of valuable information for the team to keep close to the vest. Um, so, yeah, you get a lot of a lot of the things and you have to do a couple of things. First, you can. Um, if you, if you read up, you might, you might read something that, you know, the beat writer wrote about, about the injury that gives you a little more information than just the, the DL or the, you know, the, the IL transaction itself. Um, and it's also understanding, okay, he's a, he's a pitcher. He has shoulder information. What are, what are the likely causes? Uh, because, you know, one of the things that, scientists in general and doctors specifically do is they start with the most likely cause and they, and they work from there. So, you know, you start to think what's the most likely cause, what are, what are the risk factors, you know, what are the chances that, you know, it's, it's inflammation, but what are the chances it's actually a serious injury? So, you know, what I try to do in my column is, is not just tell the reader, you know, I think he'll be back in three weeks, but I try to explain what the risk factors are and try to give a sense of, of what the possible outcomes are. Um, you know, in, in, um, in Kelly's case, you know, shoulder inflammation is about as, as, as vague as it gets, but, um, you know, I, I typically will project, okay, if, if it's a simple problem, he could be back in two or three weeks and we'll start there and then we'll look for more information. and as the story develops, as you get more information about the player in subsequent columns, I will provide updates if there's a significant change in a player's status or we get more information that that tells us, okay, here's what the, the real problem is. It made me think I had elbow inflammation a number of years ago. I played a lot of tennis when I was younger and, and the doctor says, you've got an inflammation in there 
and in there, you know, first of all, in there doesn't exactly tell you what's going on because there's a lot of stuff in there, including a, one major ligament, one major tendon. And he said, you know, right now we'll just give you a cortisone shot and see if that straightens everything up. And it did. But then a little yeah. while later it comes back. And then he says, well, now we got to, we, we, we know that the cortisone shot didn't stop whatever it was. We got to move on. And now we got to start doing some scans and, you know, some investigation and so forth. And to make a long story short, I ended up getting surgery on both the uh, UCL and the, the tendon on the top, forehands yeah, and backhands, right? Both. And I think the process, it sounds like for you is exactly the same as that, that it's going to start with this vagueness and you have to kind of push and shove and poke and prod but you don't actually get to do it with the player. You have to do it through the news media, through reports, and possibly player history, I'm going to guess, and and just the, the database that says guys who follow this pattern often end up to have had this this particular issue as opposed to this general issue. Yeah, and, and, and that's something I can do. And, and I can even look at the database and just say, okay, well, if it started with shoulder information, we've got 30 players who started with shoulder information, you know, how much time did they miss on average? How much, you know, what were the, what were the extremes? So that helps give us a sense of, even though it's a vague description of the problem, it still gives us a sense of where these players, where this player could end up. You know, we could say, okay, well, you know, it, it's likely he's out for two to three weeks because most of the players that started with this, with something vague, they were out for two to three weeks, but you know, we could say, you know, a quarter of the players were out for three months or more. Um, so, so even though the description is vague, we can, we can still use the data to kind of help us and, um, and model both, you know, what the, what the likely return is and what the, what the extreme cases might be. As fantasy players and as sports fans, we're all pretty conditioned to grimace and even to say, call Dr. Andrews and pencil in an 18-month recovery when we hear about a pitcher who's got a UCL problem. And we know what that is. We've had enough exposure to it. But we have a much less stable understanding, Matt, I think, of most other injuries. And I wonder if you had any advice to help us understand, are there general rules that apply to help us understand the seriousness of injuries pretty much just from their names? Well, I mean, there there are certainly some injuries, um, and, and a lot of these have have become more well known in the past few years. Um, thoracic outlet syndrome is one that should scare anybody when they hear it. We've had um, it, it's interesting. The early history was that most players came back pretty well. Over the last five to eight years or so, um, there have been several players who've had it and and have struggled for a while after they came back. Um, um, really, any any sort of uh, shoulder injury to a pitcher should should worry you. Um, it, it's hard to tell how serious the injury is un, until they dig in a little. It's, I think it's hard for the doctors to figure that out too. Um, and you know, you can also go by. You know, I talked about detective work. You can go by um, what the team is doing. Um, you can see how they're reacting. You can kind of read between the lines of what they might be saying about the injury uh, to figure out how serious it is. Um, but, um, you know, any, any, anything to do with the elbow uh, that could lead to Tommy John surgery is also a concern. Um, but again, you know, aside from a, from a handful of uh, specific things that don't come off, 
don't come up often. Um, it's it's really unfortunately it's a lot of art trying to dig into um, some of the reports and and see what might be happening behind the scenes. You mentioned uh, Tommy John surgery, and, and I know that one of the f- it seems to me anyways, as a casual observer, that anytime I see a pitcher who goes on the IL or who's taken out of a start uh, because of what the team calls forearm problems or lower arm problems, they have th- those type of terms. And oftentimes it seems to me that that's kind of the first step in what ends up being an elbow problem, that the forearm is kind of a precursor to elbow problems that are a precursor to Tommy John surgery or something very serious that's going to cost this pitcher you know, a lot of games started rather than a few. Yeah, that's true. Um, there are, a, you can, you can, usually they get in a little more detail when they say, when they talk about the forearm, there are flexor strains, which are typically f- further away from the elbow um, that are usually, you know, they can still be a precursor. And, and I think if anyone remembers Zach Britton a couple of years ago was out for quite a while with a flexor strain. Um, if they talk about a flexor pronator strain, that's actually right where the pronator mass is right where the uh, right in the same vicinity of the elbows where the UCL attaches. So that can be um, definitely a precursor. Um, another one is any triceps issues, triceps tightness, triceps tendonitis, triceps soreness. Again, the triceps, um, the, the bottom part attaches close to where the UCL is. So that can also be a precursor. We know about shoulder injuries, elbow injuries are very serious for pitchers for obvious reasons. What about hitters? Are there certain injuries that we should really be more worried about for a hitter than other injuries that afflict them? And they, they get a lot of different injuries, but are there any, is there a Tommy John analogy when you're talking about hitters, something that serious? Um, you know, I, there, are, there are very few injuries that you can look at and count on for a hitter to miss um, a significant amount of time. Um, one of the ones that comes up from time to time is um, um, stress fractures, stress reactions. Um, those can be really slow to heal, especially if they're in the foot or ankle. Um, I remember David Dahl uh, a few years ago he had a stress reaction to his rib, didn't sound like a big deal. And I think he missed three or four months of the season. So um, there's really not a single injury that you immediately look at um, unless it's like a, you know, Gregory Polanco running into the wall and destroying his shoulder kind of injury that, that you're going to look at and say, okay, he's going to be out for, he's going to be out for six months. He's going to be out for a year. Um, the one thing I'm usually most concerned about with hitters is wrist injuries um, particularly any broken bones in their top hand. So the right hand for right-handed hitters, left hand for left-handed hitters, um, that can really sap their power. The, the, the strength in the wrist and the soreness can, uh, the strength, lack of strength in the wrist and the soreness can really persist for a while. So you'll see a pitcher, uh, a hitter maybe come back in, in four or six weeks and he's back to hitting, but it can take three or four months for him to really get his power back. So wrist injuries are one where I really look at and think, the, the player might not be out for a long time, but there's potential that his hitting is going to be affected for a while. Are there 
some injuries more than others that tend to be repeated or that tend to recur, maybe even without causing a return to the IL, or maybe the player's never really been on the IL. When you were talking about David Dahl, I was wondering, uh, while you were describing what he was going through, as is it a situation where the guy suffers the injury and then whether through the course of just everyday living or going trying to get back to practice and stuff, aggravates the injury and doesn't get doesn't let it heal, or even if it is healed, it's more likely than some other injuries to recur just because the underlying structure has been irretrievably weakened? Yeah, so the, the biggest one is muscle injuries. So hamstring strains, quad strains, calf strains. Um, the, the issue there is, is when the player starts to feel 100%, so he's not really feeling any more pain or tightness. Um, when that first happens, the muscle is still healing. So um, there's, there's a, a really high, not really high, a, a somewhat high risk of the player coming back too soon. Um, and players are conditioned to play through minor pain. So you might get a guy with a, with a muscle strain and he's on the IL for a couple of weeks and he, and he's like, well, I, I'm like 90%. And so he comes back and then he's, uh, he either re-aggravates it or, or, you know, uh, usually it's, usually it's more re-aggravating that the tearing it more is not all that common, but, uh, any, any sort of muscle injury, soft tissue injuries, like sprained ankles, um, they, they tend to not heal as well. And so, you know, the, the joint or the muscle is still pretty weak when they first return. Um, and, you know, uh, any, any sort of recurring pain, if, uh, uh, you know, if, if a guy in spring training is having knee problems, you, you know, Jordan Alvarez might be a great example. Um, you know, he, he played now, it turns out he played all of 2019 with knee pain and he's had knee pain, you know, on and off since spring training. Um, that's always, that's always a sign that there's, that there's really something wrong. And a guy like that, he could play all season or, you know, he could go on the IL next week and be out for the rest of the year because, um, whatever's going on with his knees is probably, um, somewhat of a, of a time bomb ready to go off. I was listening to a doctor friend of mine. He was talking about sports injuries and this is quite a while ago, but he said, if you want to see how come baseball players get knee injuries, he said, watch golf swings. And he said, watch how much stress there is on that on the front knee, uh, uh, the left knee of a right-handed guy swinging a golf club. There's, uh, it happened to Tiger Woods, also back injuries. There's so much torque being applied through those relatively small um, masses, small muscles, small joints, that it's no wonder these things break because, you know, you're just, it would be like applying a, a 10,000 horsepower motor through the, you know, drivetrain of your Nissan and, and wondering why the drive shaft failed or why the universal joints failed. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's, um, um, a knee injury, knee pain, you know, we don't, we don't think of that necessarily as something that's going to significantly impact a hitter, but it really can hitters, hitters with, with knee injuries, um, can struggle for a while. And you see, it, it's, it's not unusual to see a hitter who's been kind of scuffling for a month or two. And then you find out he's, he's had a bad knee. And because you're right, those, those, the, the knees and the hips take an awful lot of, of, um, pressure during the swing, the hips are bigger and stronger, so they can, they can withstand it better than the knees, but uh, knee pain can really throw off a hitter. 
Yeah, they talk about in hitting, whether it's a golf uh, swing or a baseball swing or even a hockey swing, there's a there's a kinetic chain, they call it, that starts with the ground underneath your feet or the ice underneath your feet, I suppose. And yeah. then you're anchored to it, and then you start these series of, of twists. And the last twist is the, the hands going through and, and snapping through. But that's also the weakest link in the chain because your wrists are the smallest part of the chain your as you said your hips are giant the muscles are huge and that's why yep. good hitters get their hips involved in the swing but if you think about all the rest of it your knees underneath your hips your your obliques which a lot of hitters have trouble with uh, and are slightly smaller muscles and then of course your hands and wrists absorbing all of this kinetic force it's little wonder that guys get hurt and then it's also little wonder that a lot of them take a long time to get fully recovered and some of them never really do. Yeah, that's true. And, and the other thing that can happen if, if a player has pain really anywhere in his body, but, but the knees, since we're talking about the knees, um, without even realizing it, you can alter the motion. He could alter the motion of his swing to kind of take the pressure off of that knee, but then he's maybe not driving through the ball. He's not, he's not getting his hips rotated. His timing is off. So it's not, it, it's not even that, you know, the knee is giving out as he's swinging. It could just be he's feeling pain. And when he feels the pain without even thinking about it, he's, he's changing how his body moves. And that's really throwing off his, his whole swing. I've heard the same thing and maybe even more true for pitchers is the, 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 the motions are so much more tightly calibrated that if there's a problem, a change, an injury based change in the mechanics of that kinetic chain, uh, you got a sore toe. I remember the, the, the Herb score took a line drive off his toe. Yeah. He was never the same pitcher. And he said later yeah. on uh, that he just couldn't land the same way. And as a result of that, everything about the kinetic chain changed. And then he started getting aches and pains all through the rest of his body. And I think that's something that people don't take seriously enough as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and a pitcher who returns from an injury you know, he might have a shoulder injury or, or Tommy John surgery and, you know, he's gotten that issue, whatever it is, he's gotten that all repaired and, and it's back. But, you know, now he's no longer favoring that particular part of the body. And so he's perhaps going back to what his motion should be. And all of a sudden now he's putting stress on parts of his arm and shoulder and elbow that haven't been as stressed uh, before because he was altering his motion to account for the pain. And, and that's why a lot of times when a, when a, pitcher returns, uh, you know, some other injury crops up. It might be an oblique. It might be a back problem. It might be a neck problem um, because, you know, he's, he's using his body in ways that he hasn't used it in a while. Matt, is there such a thing, do you believe, as an injury-prone player? Uh, absolutely. I think, um, um, I think everybody's body is different and there are, there are, you know, um, there are people with particularly tight muscles, people with particularly loose muscles, um, tight joints and loose joints. You know, uh, um, our, our hips and shoulders are not all constructed the same way. And so, yeah, they're, they're you know, the, the major league players put an awful lot of stress on their bodies. Um, they, they push their bodies really. Um, uh, I, I think I read one article by a doctor who said there's enough force on every pitch thrown to potentially tear someone's UCL. Um, so it's, it, it, there are players whose bodies just aren't designed to, to handle that kind of stress and that kind of workload. And, 
you know, I think players can build up to it. They can build up their endurance. They can improve their flexibility, but um, you know, everybody, everybody's got a limit. And I think uh, major league baseball tests those limits for most players. And some players just don't have the, the, the body they need um, to do what they do. So, yeah, I think, I think there are definitely players who are, who are more likely to be injured. And then there are some that are lucky and some that are unlucky. Um, you know, the luck always plays a factor, but the, uh, but the injury prone injury or health rather is a skill and, and we should treat it like a skill. This raises the question about the application of data that we've all lived through the Moneyball era and the uh, increasing importance of quants in the front offices, figuring out all these various kinds of things. And I've read that one of the things that ball baseball organizations are really looking at is improving the caliber of their medical care and their training staffs to recognize things farther ahead of time so that they can be more preventive about these kinds of uh, situations that we're talking about. For instance, fatigue. Uh, that we know that anybody who's going into a, a physically stressful situation under under uh, the stress of fatigue or is getting fatigued during the uh, playing of the game is more prone to various kinds of injuries. And so they're, you know, looking at how they're sleeping, they're t- sending the guys home pillows on the road with them and all of these kind of things, trying to improve sleep and diet and all these other kinds of things. And yet it seems like we're getting more injuries than ever. So what is going on here? They should be getting fewer and they're getting more. Well, I, you know, I, I think there are a couple of things. I think you're right. There's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, um, um, analysis going on, a lot of quantitative stuff. Uh, one of the things that I think is, um, has al- is almost proven at this point to be very accurate is, is looking at, um, a pitcher's workload over time and looking at the peaks in his workload. So, you know, if you go out and, and, er, you know, you go out every two or three days and I'm, I'm just throwing out hypotheticals, but if you go out every two or three days and you throw 80 pitches and then you have a start and you throw a hundred pitches, well, that's not too much different from what your body's used to. If you go out every two or three days and throw 60 pitches and then you go start throw 120, that's putting a lot of peak stress on your body and your, and your body's not used to that. Um, the other factor I think is, is as, as we get better at, um, at maximizing the physical potential of the players, uh, which also should protect them from injuries, players just push themselves a little harder. You know, you, you know, we see pitchers now, you know, if you don't throw, if you don't throw 92, 93 miles an hour, um, you, you better have, you know, you better be, you know, Zach Granke who, who can, you know, um, you know, throw with movement and mix up his pitches and all of that, you know, you, you better be, you know, an extremely skilled pitcher because if you're throwing 90, 91 and you know, you're, you're fastball slider and that's it, you're, you're, you're going to get rocked. So, um, so I think pitchers are, are pushing themselves harder. And what we're seeing, you know, I talked about um, sustained workload or chronic workload and then peak workload. And what we're seeing now, I think, is a lot of pitchers who are actually increasing that peak workload because, you know, they know as a starter, they're not going to be expected to go seven or eight innings. So they can throw at, you know, close to maximum effort for five or six innings instead of throwing at, you know, a little bit less effort for seven or eight. Um, so, you know, the, the, 
the science can help us understand and help us um, maximize both the, the physical potential and the health of the players. But if the players are going to go out and push themselves to the limit all the time, you're still going to see a lot of injuries. Something else that came up a couple of years ago when they were talking about all of this sort of stuff was looking at what they called high-stress pitches when you're getting right down to the individual pitch. Guy on second, guy on third, one out, and you're the starter, and it's the fourth inning, and you've already thrown maybe 24, 25 pitches to get into this pickle. And all of a sudden now you have to, as you said, the pitcher has to bear down. He has to work even harder, even though his muscles are getting fatigued from what he's done in the inning already. And all of a sudden he gets himself into a jackpot where he's not only adding to his fatigue, but at the same time, he's adding to the stress he's putting his body through during the fatigue that he's creating for himself, which is a really bad state of affairs, but it's difficult for his manager to come out in that situation in the fourth inning, especially if it's, you know, Justin Verlander or Jacob deGrom or somebody to say, you know what, you've hit your limit of how many high stress pitches we're willing to allow you to throw. Cause he's going to say, I'm not leaving. And, and you know, there's going to be a fuss and all that kind of stuff. Sooner or later, they have to figure this out. Yeah. And, and, and if a pitcher or any player really is, is, um, pushing his body that hard, that frequently it's, it's going to cause breakdowns, you know, the, um, it's, it's, you know, you used a car analogy earlier. I, I, I have a friend who went on a big road trip and his, his minivan broke down about halfway through because he went up this incredibly steep mountain and instead of keeping it 20 miles an hour, so his car, he, you know, he said, I'm going to go 40, 45 the whole way. And his car was probably five or 6,000 RPMs for two or three miles. And it just gave out, you know, um, same, same thing with a, with a player's body, you know, you, you're, you know, there's only so hard you can push it. And at some point, if you push too hard or for too long, something's going to give. I drove through the Rocky Mountains once from uh, Alberta into British Columbia up here in Canada, uh, probably 14,000 feet or so. And um, I was in my buddy's car and it was a three-cylinder Pontiac Firefly. <laughs> talk about going 20 miles an hour i mean we were seeing yeah. like turtles running past us it was we were going so yeah. slow it was quite hilarious uh but it you know it you have to do it because otherwise if we'd have held the pedal to the metal by the time this thing got to the peak we would have only been able to coast down because the engine would have been cooked and it's a really oh, yeah. good analogy now how does the fantasy player apply all this i mean do we look at certain teams and go this team never seems to get it i'm not going to take any of their pitchers or i'm going to be very very dubious about taking any of their pitchers because of the heightened uh, problems with potential injuries or are there teams that do it really well and we can say you know what I think this team's got it figured out I trust their pitchers more not to get hurt or players more not to get hurt yeah I I, I, I mean I you know the the one example that that people hit on over and over again and I think for good reason is is the New York Mets and you know they they I think want to say they changed their medical staff last year. So, you know, we'll, we'll give them a break at this point and see how, see how they do. But, but for several years, it wasn't just players were getting hurt and players were getting hurt more frequently than you might expect. It just seemed like, you know, players would get hurt and they would handle the, 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 the uh, diagnosis wrong. They would handle the recovery wrong. You know, they just couldn't seem to, um, to deal with injuries in any in any intelligent way, um, it, I think there are teams that have better medical staffs 
and I think it's also coaching too. It's, you know, if you're, if you're teaching players um, or, or helping players, I want to say teaching because most of these guys, they know what they're doing. You don't get to the major leagues if you don't know what you're doing, but helping them make adjustments, helping them, you know, keep with, with a, a more efficient motion, um, managing, helping to manage their workloads. I think there are teams who do that better than others. Um, you know, I, I, I've wondered for a couple of years now why every team doesn't just keep an MRI in the locker room. And anytime a player tweaks a muscle, just, I mean, an MRI, you know, if you've ever had one, it's a pain. It's, you know, half hour, 45 minutes of sitting absolutely still. Um, so I can understand why players wouldn't want to do it. But, um, you know, if a player tweaks a muscle or has some sort of soft tissue injury, why not give an MRI, see what's going on instead of, you know, waiting a week? Um, you know, it, it's uh, it, these players are a big investment, and uh, you're, you're certainly right. Some teams do uh, better at others than than managing the the health and and injuries for the players. I don't know where I heard it, but I did read somewhere that the White Sox are supposed to have a really good reputation in the area of training and medical staff, all of those kind of things. This is something you do research for Baseball HQ. might be a place in the offseason where you could go through. and It must be fairly easy to find empirical evidence for teams that have lots of injuries or lots of repeat injuries versus teams that don't. And, uh, boy, it would be really good to know when I'm at draft I've got a choice I'm coming down to. Do I want, you know, uh, uh, Gio Gonzalez or do I want some equally poor pitcher on uh, the New York Mets of old? And uh, having that information at hand, I might say, you know what, I'm, I'll take the White Sox guy because I trust the doctors more. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's I think that's worth looking into. Um, the problem you can run into is I, I heard, uh, for example, recently that the, the Pirates have uh, let go of Ray Searage. Um, I, I think that was in the off season and I missed it, but, you know, for a few years, it was like everyone who went there, you know, he would take average guys and they, and they put up good numbers. So you'd say, okay, well let's draft pitchers because they've got a great pitching coach. And then for a couple of years after that, it didn't work at all. Chris Archer went there. He didn't get any better. Uh, Garrett Cole left Pittsburgh and got a lot better. So, um, I think there's value in looking at the teams and how they do, um, I think, though, that that, you know, they can they can still vary over time, even if you think you've, you know, you've uncovered a, a team that's really good or really bad with with handling these things. Um, you know, it's it's I'm it might be predictive of the future. And I think it's good information to know. Um, I would probably count on it more as a tiebreaker than anything. Well, that's what we're always looking for. Right. I mean, basically, yeah. we start with these fairly routine uh, structural things about uh, proven skills on the field, whatever they happen to be. And then there's a lot of guys who end up tied based on those things. They're pretty close. Yeah, yeah. And we're always yeah. looking for kinds of tiebreakers, young or old, left-handed, right-handed, you know, ballpark effects. And maybe this is just one of those other things that could slot into that 2% of, of added advantage yep. that, you know, could swing yep. the difference. Uh, but speaking of draft, uh, Matt, is there a player type you simply won't consider in your own drafting based on what you've learned over the years about injuries? You said you got started in this whole thing because of uh, uh, draft-related thinking. Yeah. And have you come to any conclusions about this is a kind of player, I'm out? I mean, certainly pitchers with chronic shoulder issues, um, um, anyone with a, with a bulging disc in their back or their neck that hasn't been uh, – uh, corrected through surgery, those things just tend to 
pop up over and over again. Um, you know, I've been, I've been away from Clayton Kershaw for about five years and he's had, he's had some good years and some not as good years. Um, he hasn't had the injury blow up that, that I thought there was the potential for, but, um, one of actually one of the best indicators and, and I'm going to tout baseball HQ here is, um, one of the best indicators of, of the potential for injury is if a player had a similar injury the year before. And if the, if the player had this, a similar injury in both of the preceding years, the, the risk is even higher. Uh, baseball HQ's health grade, of course, um, is based on how many days the player spent on the DL the last three years. And so that's, it, it's a very simple metric. Um, but it actually turns out to be pretty effective at grading players' injury risk. Um, so certainly if a player has had an injury um, two years running, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I would never say to stay away from a player because if I think the guy's got you know, fifth-round potential and because of his injury history he drops back to the 15th round, I might say, well, you know, it's 15th round pick, I'll take, I'll take a chance. What you do know? you got to lose? Half, <laughs> half a season, I probably, you know, get, get back my value, but, uh, but yeah, certainly players uh, who, who've had recurring problems, uh, similar injuries in back-to-back years um, are players you, you want to think, think really hard about before, before drafting, before putting any significant draft capital. And one last question I had in the in the most recent Big Hurt column, you've got a couple of players, Raphael Devers of Boston and Giancarlo Stanton of the Yankees with strains. In yeah. one case, an ankle sprain, and in the other case, a hamstring strain. Strain, sprain, what's the difference? And there are degrees of these things. Oh, absolutely. Um, with any soft, with any, I mean, any injury, but, but particularly with soft tissue injuries, um, there is a, there's a big difference. Uh, there could be big difference in severity. Um, uh, Devers had a, uh, I called it a sprain. The team was calling it a tweak. So, you know, we might say a twisted ankle. Um, it's, it's any degree of an injury. If, you know, if you twist your ankle, tweak your ankle, it's still a sprain. It's just a very mild one. Uh, sprains typically affect ligaments, um, primarily, uh, ligaments can be stretched, become stretched out. Um, strains with a T are for muscles. So, um, in fact, I, I think I looked and saw that Devers was playing tonight. So, you know, his injury obviously wasn't all that serious. Um, and Stanton, you know, is on the IL, so he's obviously going to be out for a little while. Um, but yeah, it's, um, um, in both cases, it's, uh, there's still a chance of recurrence. There's still a chance of them re-injuring the, when you when you twist your ankle, you stretch out the ligaments so that joint is is not completely stable until until you're fully healed. Um, and with muscle injuries, again, you 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 start to feel better before the muscles completely healed up. So, um, and and in the two cases, I I I think I looked at the what the teams were saying, and it seemed like Devers was was really a very mild injury that might only keep him out for a few days, and Stanton's was a little more serious. Um, I think since I wrote the column, Stanton's been, been, uh, diagnosed with a grade one strain, which is, which is not terribly serious, but it's still probably two to three weeks before he'll be back. And grade one is the, the least worrisome kind. And then there's two and three and three is a pretty significant tear, right? These are all tears of the muscle, small, medium, and large basically, right? They all are. Yeah. Grade one is usually a, a fairly minor tear. 
Um, grade two, there's usually significant tearing, uh, can, you know, maybe be 50% of the muscle or more. Uh, grade three often means a complete tear where the muscle fight, the muscle tissue has been completely separated or, or very close. So, um, I grade grade three muscle strains are pretty rare. Um, you see a lot of grade one and grade two. Yeah. I've had a friend of mine who played goal and uh, he went across the crease to make a save and tore his hamstring basically in half. And they called it a, a major rupture. For grade three strain, they'll often call it a rupture. And he never played again. So uh, it can be extremely serious. Uh, it's all oh, yeah. serious business and you do a great job, Matt, uh, explaining it every week at BaseballHQ.com in the Big Hurt column. It's a tremendous resource for roster planning and for making decisions, especially as we're coming into trade deadlines. You want to get up to date on, do you want to really take a chance on Madison Bumgarner? I read this, I say, eh, no, <laughs> you know, yeah. it would have to be, it would have to be like uh, for nothing at this point to take a chance on Madison Bumgarner. Jose Abreu's got a left hip soreness uh, so far. That's all they say about it. But you say he's going to be out maybe a couple of days. I would make a deal on Jose Abreu at this point. All of this kind of information works so well to help fantasy players make good sound decisions based on injuries. You do a great job. Uh, thank you very much for doing this uh, call and uh, we'll talk to you again during the year. All right. Well, we'll have to make it not 12 years next time. <laughs> That's right. No more than 10. I promise. All right. There we go. Thanks, Matt. All right. You're welcome. Matt Cederholm is a fantasy researcher and the Big Hurt Injury columnist at BaseballHQ.com. We'll take a quick pause for some refreshments, and when we come back, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen, player projections and valuation expert at Rotographs. Ariel Cohen back for his second plate appearance next on Baseball HQ Radio. And I don't want the worst umpire in the league telling me where we are in the standing. He can call me a horse manager. But I don't need to be reminded, well, this club isn't a standing. By somebody that can't do their job, that never has been able to do their job. Myself, the coaches, and the players can take only so much of this crap. That was a classic the last two games, I'm going to tell you right now. 23 years, that's the worst I ever saw. Now, when they want to me personally, again, I don't give a Because I got more time than all those out there. But when they start talking about this ball club, don't back me up against the fucking wall. Because if it weren't for the good umpires in the league, all the other guys out there, Brent Leonard-Papetio would be in the minor league. Maybe. Maybe. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David. I'm here with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs. And Ariel, we were talking earlier about your new metric, but I'd like to talk about uh, another article you wrote, this one had six bold predictions for the season. You wrote this in uh, July and you characterize your bold calls as, you know, a likelihood of 10 to 30%, what we at Baseball HQ call speculations. And it's always fun to assess these as they get rolling. Your first bold prediction was that Eddie Rosario of Minnesota would be a second round producer in standard five by five value. By Baseball HQ valuations through Tuesday of this week, Rosario had earned about $18 middle of the fifth round value. How confident are you that your Eddie Rosario prediction is going to turn around and come true? 
Oh, well, um, you know, so far I'm actually pretty pleased with with Rosario's uh, uh, state and his production so far. And I will stand by this bold prediction. I think that it's going to be on the high side. I think uh, I'm not going to say 50-50, but I think it's going to be 30-40%. So better than just a bold prediction at this point. Um, Eddie Rosario is, has been one of the highest fly ball surgers this season. Last year he had a rate of 42%, which has now jumped to 53%. He's now tied in for third place in the American League with home runs with six, which if you do your math for a full season, that's a 55 home run pace. He had 20 home runs last year, just in the first half. So I think it's safe to say that Rosario is a big power hitter, capable of 40 to 45 home runs. He he's capable of it. Uh, what what I am excited about is so far his strikeout rate is the lowest ever so far of his career at 13% so far this season, um, which is an 80% contact rate, and it, and it, it's been elite. So it's been elite. To this point, it even got better. One of his big flaws in his game has been his walks. He's been pretty bad for OBP leagues, but he's brought that up. He now is walking at a 10% rate, which is fantastic news. His batting average so far hasn't been great, 226, but he has a 170 Babbitt. So I think he's going to bounce back. And, you know, on Minnesota, he's going to score a lot of runs and get a lot of RBIs. Minnesota's just a fantastically offensive-powered team. Uh, this Eddie Rosario guy is, is a lot better than people think, and I'm sticking my bull prediction. I think that uh, this is a top-notch player uh, that has a real chance of getting second-round value by end. Get out there and make an offer on uh, Eddie Rosario then uh, if your trade market in your league allows you to do it. Uh, Victor Robles to lead the National League in stolen bases was bold prediction number two. He hasn't stolen a bag at all this year, and he's five behind Tommy Pham, who's the leader. We've been reading a lot this year, Ariel, about how stolen bases are just generally way down across the board, except for San Diego. How confident are you that Victor Robles can uh, steal his way into contention for this bold prediction? Oh, not not so much. I don't think so. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier in the show that stolen bases are usually found in March, April, and then again in September. Um, starting the season in July, it's hotter. You're going to see less stolen bases in the league. I think it's it's a a, a, a league thing. Um, it, it's a, just a monthly thing there. Um, but in terms of of st stolen bases, it really has to do with team philosophy. And the Nationals are currently third to last in stolen bases. They have three stolen bases this year. Uh, Padres have 21. Um, as a team, they've been caught more times than they've actually gotten successful at stolen bases. They're only the, there's only two teams to have that terrible uh, trait. So the Nationals are not running. They're not going to run. You're not going to see Trey Turner at the top of list as well. I think it's a team philosophy, so I'm going to say that this prediction is not going to work out, although it is possible that Robles might end up with the Nationals lead by the end of the season, but you won't see him being anywhere near the top of leaderboards this year. You hit the jackpot, RL, with a 2019 bold prediction that Taylor Rogers would lead Minnesota in saves, and this season, a bit of a brother act, you said Tyler Rogers would lead the San Francisco Giants in saves. Rogers has an 1188 ERA, a 168 whip. How likely is it that this submariner can get out from underwater on this bold prediction? Rogers had a save last night, 
and he pitched one perfect inning with striking out two. So there you go. I'm, I'm st I've started on the train back there. Uh, you know, this is a, supposed to be a bold prediction. We're talking 10 to 30%. And I'm going to say we're about 20% to get it now. I don't think Gott is a lock. I think Rogers just started slow. In fact, if you look at his strand rate, it's been 32%. For those who know what strand rate is, it's number of runners that are scoring who are on base, or, 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 or I'm sorry, number of runners who you don't score uh, who are strand on base. Um, normally, pitchers get like 70 to 75% strand rate. He's at 32. So he a lot of runners are scoring more than normal. Um, but if you look at his other components, they're pretty stable. His ground ball rate is still at an awesome 65%, which is uh, unremarkable. Strikeouts are a tad low, but they usually are low. Uh, and he struck out two last night. So uh, I'm not optimistic. I still think it's a bold prediction, but I don't think this is this one is over yet. Uh, just you wait. And uh, something I'd like to add, Ariel, to that analysis is anytime you see a relief pitcher, especially one who has been coming in, not at the end of games, but uh, maybe in the seventh, eighth innings, uh, and he seems to have a very high ERA driven by a very low strand rate, take a look and see how many of his runners were actually scored by subsequent pitchers. He leaves the game with a runner on first, say, and the next guy comes in and allows a home run. That run gets charged to the first guy, not to the second guy, even though it really wasn't his fault in the same way as if he had put the guy on and then given up the home run himself. I've seen this time and time again where uh, a, a sneakily high ERA based on strand rate actually is disguising pretty good performance by the pitcher that you're looking at, not so good by the guys who are coming after him. And I think that's important to know. Uh, bold prediction number four, this was a team call. The White Sox, you said, would win the American League Central. Uh, last time I checked, they were fourth in the division. I think they're right around 500, but they're just two games back of the leading Twins. This looks like a horse race all the way. You must be pretty confident. Yeah, I mean, this is this is going to go down to the end. Um, it, it's going to be any one of four teams really making it. Actually, any one of three. I think that uh, uh, the Detroit is going to just is going to fall off. Uh, but yeah, the the White Sox have a lot of ingredients. They've bolstered the rotation with uh, Gio Gonzalez and and Dallas Keuchel. Uh, they've bolstered their their offense uh, with a couple of new acquisitions, Grandal and and uh, whatnot. Um, they're bringing up their rookies to play, Luis Roberts. I think the White Sox are a, a good team and have pretty much just as shot as anyone. Uh, the Twins, Twins have an amazing offense, but I don't think their pitching is as up to snuff as people think. So um, I, I think also this is another you know twenty five percent chance for this one. Um, you, you never know. I'd go bigger than that. I think this is a fifty percent to sixty percent likelihood. Uh, nice. I don't like the Tigers either. Of course, I'm delighted that they're having a, a good start to the season, and it, and it makes the whole thing more fun, but looks like uh, more smoke and mirrors than anything. And like you, I don't know that the Twins have the pitching that they're going to need, even in a short season, to be as competitive. The White Sox seem to be balanced. They seem to have a lot of things going right. I would make them the favorite to win the division right now if it weren't for oh, Cleveland, wow. and Cleveland's losing pitchers to dumb behavior every day. <laughs> you know, Pretty soon they're going to have the clubhouse boy out there on on the mound, uh, and we'll see what happens with them. Uh, and finally, bold prediction number five, Ariel, that uh, you said C.J. Crone, speaking of Tigers, would be a top 15 first baseman, and so far so good on this one. He's number 13 uh, among first base eligible hitters, according to baseball HQ valuations, but just $12, and there's a bunch of guys 
clumped around there, so uh, not a great year for first baseman in general. The leader is Renato Nunez of the also surprising Baltimore Orioles. How confident are you that C.J. Crone can stay in the top 15, holding off guys like Anthony Rizzo, Joey Votto, and Paul Goldschmidt, assuming Goldie gets to play a full slate of games? Well, I, I surely hope that the Cardinals do get to play all the games. Um, uh, just a bit about Renato Nunez. Um, I, I wasn't surprised by Nunez coming up this year. Um, last year, I wrote an article dubbing him as the next Chris Davis. That's Chris with a K, the 40 home run hitting a year after year guy. Uh, fantastic hard hit rate. Great park. Um, the Crone prediction, I would actually be confident right now. And I, I'm in the money right now, as, as you said, uh, except that I think he's injured. Uh, it looks like he ha- eventually will have to get some surgery, um, but uh, he may hold off to the end of the season, but but he's banged up. So I'm confident in terms of the skills, but in terms of whether he gets there with health, uh, that is beyond my control. And I, I'd probably bet against this prediction right now. That surprises me a little bit, uh, but I, I can see the logic of it because uh, I'm I'm fairly confident that if St. Louis plays, the Goldschmidt will probably get into the top 15, uh, and I wouldn't bet against Anthony Rizzo either. Uh, Votto's been a little more up and down. He started strong, but not so much. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Dev with Ariel Cohen from uh, Rotographs, and I'd like to talk to you about some player oddities that I've noticed so far this year, starting with Seattle. How about these guys? There are three Seattle hitters who are in the top 15 of hitters. Uh, Kyle Lewis at $34, Dylan Moore and Kyle Seeger, $32 each. Does any of these guys even stay close to this level of value? Oh, well, no. I mean, Kyle Seeger right now is the top third baseman in, in baseball. I have him uh, on my Tout Wars team. I drafted him. That was a good good idea, right? Um, no, I mean, this is a little bit of a little bit of fluke here. Uh, Seeger is not a 310 hitter. Um, he's been a career 257 hitter, actually. Uh, but he's shown up. Uh, He's shown some power in the past. He's shown 30 home run ability. So I think that part of his skills that he's shown here, the power is is an old skill. I mean, the old uh, adage at Baseball HQ is once you display a skill, you own it, right? Uh, so I think that there's a lot to his game. Um, preseason, I had him as about a $5 player in a 15-team league, and he's shown $15 skills in the past. So I'm not surprised, and I believe that that Seager will actually outperform what he was predicted to this year, but certainly not not at the very top. Mike Yastrzemski, is he for real? Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny, but uh, there's something about the balls up in San Francisco. The balls are going yard. Maybe, maybe baseball is mixing. Maybe the the 2019 balls are still left in San Francisco, and the rest of the league they're not. Um, so if that's the case, then uh, maybe he'll hit a couple more. Um, no, he, he it's one of these guys. He, he's going to regress. He was definitely better than people projected. I don't think people projected him even to be a rosterable player. Uh, he's rosterable, folks. Uh, but no, he's not a top player like this. Uh, he's going to regress. Bo Bichette of Toronto was a second rounder in some March drafts, uh, early third at the lowest, and about, about in the same range in July drafts. Currently scruffling along at 15 bucks is about sixth round value on Baseball HQ's uh, valuation charts. Do you think Bo Bichette will move up? I think Bo Bichette is what I call a many paths to value player because he does a bit of everything. He has contact ability. He has some power. He has speed. And he's shown it all through the minors. 
and his skills have translated all the way to the majors here. He is what he has been. He is what he does. And, you know, he's a guy like Trevor Story. He can do it all and earn value many ways. Because of that, because he won't fall completely on his face, that he'll get value somewhere, I would actually bet on him to return the same value or even better than what he's doing now. Um, I think people who drafted him as a second rounder in March, they may be a little bit too aggressive, but if you're, if you drafted him as a second round value, you're not that disappointed right now if he's earning sixth round value. Um, and I think he can do a little bit better. So I, I will say he'll move up a bit. After horrific starts, uh, Christian Yelich and Cody Bellinger have clawed back up. They're both at around $10 of value, which was well, it's quite a bit better than they were after the first uh, few games, but given how relatively short the time is remaining in the season, what chance does either Yelich or Bellinger have to reach first-round value again this year? Uh, Yelich is patting a buck 64. Ouch. Uh, he has four home runs, uh, although I think one of them was an inside-the-park home run. Um, I mean, in terms of will he end up with first round value? I think the answer is no. Um, now it's been about a third of the season so far. So that's the equivalent of having a, would you say a two month slump in a regular season? You're not going to have players who have a two month gigantic slump finishing up number one. Um, if he just slumped a bit, uh, if his numbers were slightly down, if he was batting 220, 230, maybe you can make a, a point. There's no way he's going to get to bat 300 after starting out the season 164. I mean, he'd have to bat 450, 500 to, to finish over 300 at this point, I, I would think. Um, so, uh, no, the answer is these guys won't return first-round value. That's not to say that from here on in they won't be first-round player. Uh, but when it's all said and done and you look at who's the top guys in the season, you, you won't see either of those names there. Mind you, uh, uh, Charlie Blackman's batting around 450 for this first little while, so if he can do it, Yelich could uh, certainly do it, although, of course, not playing in Colorado. Uh, the thing that worries me about I've, I own both Yelich and Bellinger, and, and there's just no speed showing. I think uh, Yelich is 0 for 1 in stolen base attempts, and I wonder if there's something going on physically that's keeping him from getting out there. And a lot of surprises, Ariel, among top 10 starting pitchers, uh, Sonny Gray, Max Freed, Dylan Bundy, Randy Dobnak, and Zach Plesak. Uh, who among these guys is you think most likely to stay in the elite and who's most likely to fall from the elite? If I had to bet, I would say Max Freed is likely to stay on top, um, especially in Roto Leagues. Um, ATC showed he was actually pretty undervalued before the season started, um, and so far he has worked out that way. He's cut down his walks very nicely. He's kept up his strikeouts. You know, Atlanta has a good offense, um, so they'll produce runs for him. And now with Mike Soroka out, I think that they'll have to pitch Freed deeper into the games to keep their bullpen fresher for some of the other starts. So anytime you pitch longer into games, you're going to have an opportunity to earn more wins. So I would say it's him uh, in terms of who's likely to fall. Um, I, I would say it's, it's Dobnak. Um, you know, looking at some of the others, you mentioned Dylan Bundy. He's reworked his pitch selection. Looks solid. Great to look solid. Please act, you know, Cleveland's pitching really fantastically everyone across the board. So, uh, once he gets back from his adventure at home, uh, and from quarantine, I think he'll be bounced back. Uh, Dobnak is the guy who looks on the lucky side. He has 11 strikeouts and in 20 innings. Uh, I, I think it's a lot of luck in his, his part. Uh, you'll see him fall. 
And the saves leaderboard, Ariel, has some unexpected names. How do you assess usurpers like Joe Jimenez in Detroit, Drew Pomerantz in San Diego, and the aforementioned Trevor Gott in San Francisco? Would you bet on any of these guys to keep gathering up saves? Um, I would say Jimenez, yes. Uh, I think that with the Tigers doing so well and possibly even making a playoffs, or at least they're definitely well in contention right now, um, I don't know if they're going to rush to trade him. He was a, a trade candidate midseason. Uh, so I think, yes, he's the only guy there. There's no other option. So it's it's Jimenez, and even though he has a terrible ERA, he's going to still pitch. I mean, look at last year, the first two months of the season, Shane Green on Detroit was, was the leader in, in baseball and saves. So I think that he, his opportunity is there. Uh, as far as Drew Pomerantz, uh, I think his stuff is there. It's tremendous strikeout rate. Uh, Yates is a guy, if not injured, but he's not a hundred percent and it's Pomerantz if it's not Yates. So I think Pomerantz can gain a couple got um, possible. I think he's going to split time with, with Rogers uh, from my bold prediction. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs. And Ariel, as you know, uh, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about players they think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Not much of a fantasy season left, but let's go through it anyway. We'll start with your boons. These are guys you think should be of interest to our listeners. Starting in the American League, who's a boon hitter? Uh, Let's go with David Fletcher. Uh, first of all, if you're playing in, in any fantasy league where there's no utility players or one utility player, he is a godsend. He's eligible at second base, third base, shortstop, outfield. Um, hey, maybe he'll end up as a pitcher, too. You never know. I mean, he's basically uh, he's a Ben Zobrist. He's going to get playing time. He got Andrelton Simmons banged up. Justin Upton is looked like he's a platoon player at this point. So I think he's going to be a regular. And he, his his claim is, is his uh, hit contact. His contact rate was over 90% last year. And he's right back to it, batting over 300 so far. And he's got, he showed last year small signs of power speed combo. He's got three homers, two stolen bases. Um, I, you can own him in deep leagues. And I even own him on my uh, home league in my 10-team uh, home league. So, uh, David Fletcher. David Fletcher's having a, a terrific start, and we're projecting him to keep it up at BaseballHQ.com. A $16 projected balance this year. He's at 26 now, but uh, falling back that little bit in such a short time is uh, is still pretty good. Uh, over to the National League, who's a boon hitter? Oh, it's Michael Conforto of my New York Mets. Um, I think that I've seen a noticeable change in his hitting approach and even his batting stance. He's actually returning to what he came up with um, rather than just stick out for homers. He's looking for contact. You know, his line drive rate is now at his career high level. And at the same time, his homer to fly ball rate is just as good, which is a great sign for him. And, you know, the Mets, people don't even realize this, even though they're not having a fantastic year. Contact and plate patience are really what the Mets are preaching. The Mets are actually second in in baseball in OBP with 344. Uh, so um, that's translated with Conforto. Well, Conforto, we knew before he has 35 homer power. He's also going to throw in a couple of steals. And this year, he's not hitting for low average. He's hitting for high average, and the Mets are putting him right up high in the lineup. I think you're going to get a lot of value out of Conforto. And if you happen to be in an on-base league, he's uh, on-base percentage is 400, which is, of course, tremendous. Yeah. Uh, over to the mound we go. Ariel, uh, how about an American League pitcher who's a boon? I'm going to go with uh, Jesus Lizardo, the rookie. Uh, he was actually ATC's number two highest projected rookie heading into the season, 
only Luis Robert was higher. Uh, his issues in the past have pretty much just been staying healthy. He had a shoulder strain in 2019. Um, he's a pitcher that sports three plus pitches, got a mid 90s fastball. He's got a track record of having really good command. Um, and so far, his results have been great. He's got a 260 RA and a 115 whip. And he's the type of pitcher that I call a whip stabilizer. I like guys like this. Um, Chris Paddock is a whip stabilizer, a little bit older, but Grant, Zach Granke is a whip stabilizer. In in this kind of short season, ERAs can fluctuate, but I think that whips don't fluctuate as much, and it's more of a guarantee to hold their value. So if you're in Roto, um, I think that Luzardo is an excellent player uh, uh, player to hold his value the only question is will he win a lot of games he's not going to go that deep the a's might limit his pitch count because of injuries so i don't know if he's going to go more than five six innings a game but if he does a a's are a good team good lineup so uh he can win some hey cesardo very very good pitcher ten dollar five by five value at baseballhq.com and we're project projecting twenty dollars in value for the balance of the season on the strength of uh Really terrific uh, ground ball rate, uh, way over 55%, and strikeout rate around 9. Uh, it's a really good combination. Uh, finally, how about a National League pitcher who's a boon? I'm going to go back to the Mets with Seth Lugo. Uh, Edwin Diaz has been struggling, and whether the Mets announced it or not, they've unofficially sort of turned over their closer role to Lugo, and right now he has three saves. Even if he wasn't the closer, I think he would still get some save opportunities. Um, but the key for him is his innings. When he comes to pitch, he's not pitching one inning. He's pitching two or so. Or he's pitching back-to-back nights, one for the save. Right now, he has nine innings pitched in the season. The major league leader from relievers right now has 11. So he's a lot of a lot of innings. He's thrown getting a lot of strikeouts. So far, his ground ball rate's over 50. He's throwing his slider and his changeup more often. So he's even perfected his pitch mix. He's got a two ERA and a .56 whip. He's only owned in 65% of ESPN leagues. I think he's very undervalued. I mean, he, uh, going to the season, I, I had him as above replacement in standard 5 by 5 So um, you, he should be universally owned right now. I have uh, Seth Lugo in a couple of leagues, uh, mixed leagues, and glad of it. I uh, I thought the same thing as you did coming into the year when I drafted in March, that uh, Seth Lugo is going to find a path to value, as you talked about earlier, with Bo Bichette. There's a lot of ways this guy could get the job done and deliver uh, either vulture wins or saves plus excellent decimals. Uh, Ariel Cohen's Boons, David Fletcher of the Angels, Michael Conforto of the Mets, Jesus Luzardo of the Athletics, Seth Lugo also of the Mets. Let's move over to the Baines now. Ariel, guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Who's an American League hitter who's a Bane? I'm going to go with Yandy Diaz. And sorry for this one because I, I actually was a little bit high on him and I picked him up in a bunch of leagues. But uh, sadly, I, I don't think so, especially for batting average formats. In OBP leagues, Yandy Diaz still has value. He is walking a nice amount of the time. Um, the Rays are batting him near at the top of the order, so he's in a position to be good, but he's hitting everything into the ground. 70% ground ball rate. Fly ball rates went from 32% to just 10% this year. There's no power. Hard contact rate has plummeted from 40 to 25%. Um, he has a 228 batting average, and it's not even that unlucky. He's got a 277 BABIP. It's possible that there's an injury. I mean, I, I, I can't see how the skill set has dropped so much. Um, I sort of hope that it's an injury so that I'd be more reassured that 
He's better than he is, but right now I can't use him. I, I've dropped him in all but the deepest of leagues. Yeah, at Baseball HQ, we have him uh, falling in his power index from 108 last year, which is eight points above league average, to 26 this year. And his expected power index, which is based more on uh, batted ball metrics, uh, down from 115 to 17. So something's going on with Yandy Diaz, but whatever it is, it definitely makes him a candidate for the bench. Uh, in the National League, who's a Bane hitter? I'm going to go with Eduardo Escobar. He's lost something with his plate discipline. Um, his walk rate has plummeted this year. His strikeout rate is sharply up. And, you know, walk rate, strikeout rate, they stabilize pretty quickly. So I'm, I'm confident that he's underperforming. He's one of the largest fly ball decliners in this season. Uh, he was at 45% last year. He's only at 30% now. Um, look, 2019 was likely a career year. We probably all know it. He was drafted higher than he should have been this year. Um, he is back to being his regular 20 homer power type guy, not a 35 homer guy. Um, now his average should rebound. He's got a bab of 217, and he's clearly not a 169 hitter, but uh, you have to fade him from what your preseason expectations are. And if an owner is hanging on to, oh, no, he'll bounce back, um, you know, they're wrong. Uh, he's not going to go back to where he was before. He's going to regress back to what he was, which was a good player, but nowhere near the degree that he was. Back to the mound we go in the American League once more. Who's a Bane pitcher? Alex Cobb. I don't trust Oriole pitchers. Uh, I just don't. Bad ballpark, bad team. You know, his fastball velocity is up a tick from last year, and it has been on the increase since 2016. Those are his good points. Uh, his ground ball rate is quite up a bit, too. But he's lucky, lucky, lucky. He has a 275 ERA, but a 466 FIP. His BABIP is 182. And now if I, if I tell you that a batter's BABIP is 182, that's unlucky, but it's possible that batters do show lower BABIPs than, than the average player. But for pitchers, it's generally a little bit more, a little bit less variable and more centered around the 300 mark. Um, so when you see a 182 BABIP of a pitcher, you know that's bad, uh, or that's, that's, that's been lucky, I should say. Strand rate, 84%. That would come down. He still has a home run problem. He's given up 30% homers to fly ball, and his strikeout rate, although improved, is still pretty pedestrian. It's 7.8K per nine this year. Uh, Cobb is not going to sustain what he's done. Uh, you can't ride him for that long. Get off the train quickly. And that's the thing about a very low Babbitt for a pitcher. When it normalizes, it's going to take the strand rate with it because it's going to be more balls landing for hits and more runners coming around to score. Uh, finally, in the National League, who's a pitcher who's a bane? Well, I mentioned before, Robbie Ray. Uh, many know that I have the thing that Chris Archer types uh, are not rosterable. And Robbie Ray is of the same mold. We're talking about a high strikeout guy, but high ERA, high whip. Like I said before, he's got a 12K per nine. He's got 23 strikeouts in 17 innings, which is enormous. But that goes with 14 walks, seven home runs given up so far. Seven home runs. He's got a 10.59 ERA and a 2.12 whip. What? Can't roster this guy. Uh, I don't know why people are still think that you have to roster these high strikeout guys. You don't have to. You can make it up by streaming, especially if you're in shallower leagues. Stream two star pitchers. You'll get more strikeouts than Robbie Ray in one one outing a week, um, and you'll have two chances for wins, and you'll have a better ERA and WHIP than than this. Uh, or just pick up high K relievers. Take a Lugo, like I mentioned. Take Jalen Beeks. 
Um, he's a disaster for Roto. Um, now, is he going to be a 10 ERA guy? No, but I think four to four or five ERA is a given. And look at his career. You know, other than 2017, his huge is a his whip is a huge drain. Um, there's no reason to roster him. Uh, huge bane for me. Ariel Cohen's Baines, uh, Yandy Diaz of Tampa, Eduardo Escobar of Arizona, Alex Cobb of Baltimore, Robbie Ray also of Arizona. Uh, Ariel, uh, tell us where listeners can read more, hear more, follow Ariel Cohen. Well, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. It's a pretty short Twitter handle to remember. I write for uh, Fangraphs in the Rotograph section. My ATC projections are up on the Fangraph site as well. I also uh, am writing for Rotoballer this year. Uh, check me out on that site. And uh, you can listen to my podcast called the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational Podcast. Uh, I do the uh, Beat the Shift edition with my buddy Ruvain Guy. Uh, give us a listen. We do a lot of strategy on on that show. Uh, what to do, how to do it, not just what player is good or not. Uh, it, it's a nice listen, so take, take a listen to that. And uh, thanks so much for having me, Patrick. This is uh, fantastic. Thank you, Ariel. I do appreciate it. Hopefully we'll get to talk with you again this season, whether on my podcast or yours. Uh, all the best of luck to you. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks again, Patrick. Take care. Ariel Cohen is a player projections and valuation expert at Rotographs. We'll take one last quick break and we'll be back with our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have Hey Taxi and Extra Innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. You worried about getting fined for the He's going out to get fined. I shouldn't get fined a dog not penny. He screws something up, but I get fined for it. He makes a bad call. All I'm doing is telling him in the dugout the ball's high. He's got rabbit ears and looks over at me, and then he throws me out of the game. Then he tells me I want show time. Who should get fined? Why don't umpires get fined? I get fined. I can't throw him out. That's what bothers me about the game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular Baseball HQ Radio commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's, hey, Texay! A commentary on players who are on Major League Baseball's taxi squads, but who might get enough playing time and produce enough with it to make them worth considering for spots on your rosters. And here with a look at Kansas City right-hander Kevin Lynch, his Baseball HQ analyst, Alex Becky. Hey, taxi! Beep, beep. What do you think of Daniel Lynch? Sometimes compared to Mackenzie Gore as a lefty, and known for sequencing his fastballs and sliders, 23-year-old Kansas City Royals left-handed flamethrower Daniel Lynch may soon be lighting up the board at Kauffman Stadium. Will it be this year? Don't count on it. Daniel Lynch has yet to throw a pitch above the Class A advanced level. Factoring in service time and developmental considerations, it may be a long shot. Then again, the Royals did already promote Brady Singer and Southpaw Chris Bubich, who, like Daniel Lynch, had thrown a pitch above Class A advanced before his Major League debut. So it's entirely possible that we may see Daniel Lynch and his 99-mile-per-hour fastball plus his mid-80s slider and curve on the mound in KC in 2020. Apparently, Chris Bubich agrees. When asked about Jackson Coar and Daniel Lynch in a recent Kansas City Star interview by Lindworthy, Chris Bubich said, I expect them to be up pretty soon as well. We're all knocking on the door, if not already there. So hey, taxi, beep beep, meter's running, Daniel Lynch is knocking, pick him up. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. 
Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his Hey Taxi commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to give you a hitter's quiz for the first third of the 2020 short season. It's been a weird baseball season full of early surprises, so instead of my usual moaning and groaning here on Extra Innings, I thought it would be a nice surprise to have a quiz about the hitters so far in this young season. We'll have eight questions. They're all about hitters. We'll do the pitchers sometime down the road. Any actual stats cited are going to be from BaseballReference.com through the games of Wednesday the 12th. The value-related questions will be based on Baseball HQ valuations through games of Tuesday the 11th. Rate questions require 40 plate appearances for the hitters, and the multiple choices are presented in alphabetical order. No hints. The scoring is simple, mostly because I didn't care enough to make up something complicated. I'll ask a question, give you a few seconds to think of an answer, give yourself a point for each correct answer, so if there's three hitters in the question, there are three points up for grabs for three correct answers. At the end of the quiz, add up all your points, get a total, and then keep it to yourself, especially if you took points for wrong answers. If you're ready, let's go. Question one. Here's a list of six hitters. Pete Alonso, Jose Altuve, Cody Bellinger, Adalberto Mondesi, Jose Ramirez, and Marcus Semien. Out of these six hitters, which three are tied in making the most outs? The answer, Altuve, Bellinger, and Semyon are all tied with 66 outs apiece. Alonso, Mondesi, and Ramirez are all up there, but not quite that high. Question 2. Of rate-qualified hitters, who has the highest strikeout rate? Miguel Sano, Gary Sanchez, Justin Smoke, or Evan White? The answer, it's Miguel Sano, his 46.4%, a whisker ahead of Gary Sanchez's 46.3%. Here's question three. Of all the rate-qualified hitters, who has the lowest strikeout rate? Is it Nolan Arenado, Tommy LaStella, Kyle Seeger, or Joey Votto? Answer, Joey Votto has fanned in just 4.6% of his plate appearances thus far, a sniff ahead of Lastella's 4.8%. Because of a slight difference in at-bats, both Votto and Lastella are whiffing once every 17.3 at-bats. Question 4. How many hitters with at least two home runs have more home runs than strikeouts? The answer... Okay, this is a really tough one, but there are three hitters who have more home runs than strikeouts with at least two home runs. Nolan Arenado has six home runs and four strikeouts. Juan Soto, despite his late start, is already at four home runs with just three strikeouts. And here's a surprise, Tyler O'Neill, two home runs and just one strikeout in 17 plate appearances. I'll take the over on the strikeouts the rest of the way for O'Neill. Votto, if you're keeping score at home, three homers, three strikeouts. Question 5. Six rate-qualified hitters have OPSs of 1,100 or higher so far. Four of them will come as no surprise to you. The leader is Charlie Blackman at 1187, followed by Bryce Harper at 1149, Mike Trout at 1115, and Aaron Judge at 1101. Which two of these six hitters, Tim Anderson, Bo Bichette, 
Nick Castellanos, Robbie Grossman, Renato Nunez, and Donovan Solano are also in the top six. The answer? Donovan Solano of the Giants is third in OPS at 1137, while the White Sox' Tim Anderson is fifth at 1107. Question 5. It's well established that San Diego is running wild on the base paths, leading the majors with 21 bags so far. But the Padres are one of three teams that has three different players with three or more bags. Which team has the most players with three or more bags? The answer? Seattle has four players who have three or more thefts apiece. Dylan Moore and Tim Lopes have four each, and J.P. Crawford and Shed Long have three. Seattle, by the way, is tied with Texas for second overall with 19 total team bags apiece. Question 6a. Ray Murphy and I talked earlier about high BABIPs in our discussion about Tim Anderson. And indeed, Anderson's 464 BABIP is fourth among rate-qualified hitters. Solano and Blackman are first and second. Both of them are over 500. But here's the surprise. Which National League catcher is the surprising third-place BABIP guy? answer, and this one caught me off guard, Atlanta backstop Travis Darno has logged a 480 Babbitt thus far, which helps explain his surprising 350 batting average. You might want to take the under the rest of the way on that. Question 6b. Sticking with Babbitt, only one rate qualified hitter in all of baseball has a Babbitt under 100. Is it Matt Olson, Eugenio Suarez, Justin Upton, or Daniel Vogelback? The answer, Matt Olson's BABIP is a very surprising 095, helping him to reach a 149 batting average so far this year. If his BABIP was more like his normal 300 or so, his batting average would be 284. Part of the problem is that Olson has 10 hits this year in the small sample so far, and six of those hits have been home runs, and we don't count home runs as hits in the BABIP calculation. The other hitters on the list also have very low BABIPs. Suarez is at 115, Upton is at 113, and Vogelback at 119. Question 7. Of all the first-round hitters by NFBC's ADPs, how many have actually returned first-round value so far, and who are they? The answer, the two hitters who have played to first-round value this year, Mike Trout, and Trevor Story. And remember all the hullabaloo about Mike Trout and how his ADP was falling when we weren't sure if he was going to play. The three Seattle hitters mentioned earlier are top three in rounds gained. Dylan Moore was basically undrafted in the NFBC, a minimum pick of 347, and he's a first-rounder so far by Baseball HQ's values. The Seattle Kyles, Lewis and Seeger, round out the trio. Lewis is up 24 spots from his 25th-round ADP, and Seeger up 21 from his 22nd round ADP. The other first-round hitters by current HQ value, how about Dansby Swanson, a 16th rounder, Nick Castellanos, a 6th rounder, uh, Blackman we mentioned earlier, Aaron Judge and Whit Merrifield, all three of them 4th rounders, and Fernando Tatis, a 2nd rounder by ADP, who is the most valuable player by quite a wide margin in fantasy so far. And by the way, Ron Chandler's Babs system said... 
take Fernando Tatis first overall. The biggest surprises by value might be the two San Francisco Giants, the previously mentioned Donovan Solano and Austin Slater. They're both second-round values, although they were both basically undrafted in NFBC. And question eight, how about the four biggest fallers from the first-round ADPs among the hitters? The first round hitters who have fallen the furthest start with Juan Soto, whose late start has him at 17th round value despite that first round ADP. Trey Turner, another national, a 15th round current value. Cody Bellinger, a 14th rounder. And Christian Yelich, who has fallen into the 13th round. And by the way, I have Yelich and Bellinger as my top picks in my two mixed drafts, so I'm very pleased. The biggest value fall among hitters overall, Glaber Torres of the Yankees, a second rounder by ADP whose current value, if he were drafted at all, would put him in the 76th round. Gary Sanchez has fallen the same number of rounds from 6th round by ADP to 80th by current value. That's our quiz. How'd you do? No, really, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Hope you had fun. We'll do pictures another time. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 23 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests from this Friday full edition, Ariel Cohen from Rotographs and Matthew Cedarholm from BaseballHQ.com. Ariel is a terrific analyst and researcher and has consistently been a fun and interesting guest here on the pod. I'll be visiting Ariel and his partner, Ruvain Guy, on their TGFBI pod on September 3rd. And it was a treat to have a first visit from Matt Cedarholm. He does great work at BaseballHQ.com doing both injury analysis and fantasy baseball research. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our Hey Taxi commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. I'm not on Facebook, but you can follow me on my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really does help us find new listeners, and it's the new listeners that keep the podcast going, as well as you experienced veterans. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Stay safe and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.